Is there always a clever shortcut for every problem where we can efficiently recognize a correct answer? And I think it's now recognized as one of the central unsolved problems in all of mathematics. Scott Aronson is a professor of theoretical computer science at UT Austin, particularly known for his work on quantum computing and complexity theory. Today we talk about free will, we talk about consciousness, complexity classes, superdeterminism, and even quantum computing. That last one in particular, we talk about what quantum supremacy actually means, rather than how it's promulgated by people like Michio Kaku and other popularizers of science. Scott explores and teaches these ideas with extreme simplicity, as well as joy, which is a rare combination. Welcome to this channel. My name is Kurt Jaimungle, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is Theories of Everything, where we delve into the topics of mathematics, physics, artificial intelligence, and consciousness with depth and rigor. This commitment stems from a recognition that popular science articles often peddle superficial falsehoods, leaving a discerning audience, like yourself, yearning for technical accuracy and substantive discourse. In other words, the audience of Toe is the audience that's willing to invest the extra time to understand the nature of reality and not be stuck in the mysticism that characterizes, say, Neil deGrasse Tyson, explaining that, whoa, quantum mechanics is both a wave and a particle. Cool, bro. Like, what does that mean? In order to understand how that's misleading, one needs to know what a complex linear combination is. And so we'd rather explain that than broadcast that a particle's both up and down at the same time. Enjoy this podcast with Scott Aronson. Welcome, Professor. It's an honor to speak with you. I've been following you for a few years. Thanks. Great to be here. I mean that in a non-creepy way. <laughs> what got you interested in computational complexity? Well, uh, I mean, I got into computer science as a, an adolescent because I wanted to uh, create my own video games, mostly. And so I learned, uh, you know, uh, what I could about programming, uh, you know, and, and, and really it was a revelation to find out that, that, you know, engineering, you know, a video game, you know, just reduces to, you know, writing these lines of code. That was not what I had expected. I like to say that for me, it was like learning where babies come from, you know, like, why didn't I find that out before? And, uh, uh, but, but, uh, as, as I learned more about it, I realized that while, uh, I, I like programming, uh, I was really not any good at software engineering at, uh, you know, making, making my code work with other people's code, getting it done by a, by a deadline, documenting it. And, you know, if I had any comparative advantage, then it was probably, you know, on the more theoretical side, right. Uh, you know, thinking about what, uh, um, um, what, what, what kinds of programs could be written, you know, couldn't be written, uh, at all, you know, and, 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 you know, I kept wondering about that. I mean, I, when I first saw, uh, uh Apple basic or, you know, and then GW basic and Q basic and, uh, you know, the, these, these ancient languages, I figured, okay, to, to make a really sophisticated program, clearly you would need a more powerful language. Right. Uh, you know, and it was a, re it was a, a, a second revelation to me that, that no, you know, you just very rapidly hit this ceiling of touring universality, right? Uh, where, you know, just a very simple programming language becomes capable in principle of expressing anything that any programming language could express. Right. Uh, you know, and so, 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 so then, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, you, you could say one, well, one of the biggest remaining questions uh, is, is about efficiency, right? Is about, uh, uh, well, you know, which, which pro among all of the problems that computers can solve, you know, which ones can they solve in a reasonable amount of time, right? Or a reasonable amount of memory. Uh, and so, you know, when I was 
15 or 16, I, I would have learned uh, what is the P versus NP problem. And, you know, and, and, that, and that problem is just so uh, uh, stunning, you know, that, that, uh, that humans could ask something, you know, so basic and yet, you know, so concrete, you know, that has a, a, defi- yeah. a definite answer one way or the other. And, you know, I, I, I uh, uh, had fantasies for, you know, uh, a few months that, uh, well, you know, all of these, these experts, you know, must have gotten, you know, stuck in a rut and I'll come in as a 15 year old and, you know, with no preconceptions and I'll polish this problem off. You know, I think it was good to have that experience. Yeah. Uh, once in my life, you know, once, w- 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 uh, 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 once was enough to get, you know, to get uh, disabused of that. Uh, um, yeah. And, and, and then, um, yeah, at, at some point, you know, I learned about quantum computing, which we can talk about more, but that actually changes the rules of computational complexity, you know, based on our best current theory of physics. Right. And that was, that was then irresistible to, to understand, uh, because, you know, somehow these very basic questions in physics and in computer science, uh, were, were merging with each other. Right. And, you know, it was all, you know, a story about computational complexity. I mean, you know, if you don't care about complexity, then there's basically no reason to build a quantum computer. Right. And, you know, anything it can do can be simulated by a classical computer, uh, albeit exponentially slower. Okay. So you need complexity theory to even pose the questions about, you know, uh, what are quantum computers good for? And, you know, but, but this was a field where there was a lot of low hanging fruit, you know, in the, in the, late 1990s when I, when I started really getting into it. And, um, you know, I was also extremely interested in AI. I thought maybe I would do that. But, you know, ag- again, there was the difficulty that AI so often boils down to, in practice, to software engineering, which I wasn't so good at. <laughs> now, it was uh, when I, uh, uh, so I was an undergrad at Cornell. Um, when I applied for uh, grad school, um, you know, I got into where I really wanted to go, which was uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, but it was the AI people who recruited me there, uh, not the theory right. people. But uh, I sort of, you know, secretly, uh, I guess, wanted to do quantum complexity theory. So uh, after a year of doing AI, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I switched. And, uh, and, and so, the, you know, and then I ended up, uh, you know, uh, um, computational complexity and quantum computing ended up being interesting enough that I've, you know, spent uh, more than 20 years of my life on them. Now, you know, and, and only now, finally, in the last couple of years, I'm circling back to AI with the stuff that I'm doing for OpenAI. Yeah, I'd love to speak with you about your work at OpenAI. Now, first, is computational complexity, algorithmic complexity, and quantum complexity distinct? Well, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say that, that, you know, computational complexity is, is the whole field that studies sort of the, the inherent computational resources that are needed to solve problems, right? And that includes, you know, uh, uh, time, uh, uh, memory, uh, uh, it, could, it could include energy, uh, randomness, uh, par- parallelism, and quantum computing is, is a part of that. Right. Uh, you know, you could say, or you could say quantumness is another computational resource that you can throw, you know, throw into the mix and then uh, uh, see how it changes things. So uh, so so, yeah, but 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 it is the field that studies sort of the inherent capabilities and limitations of algorithms. 
you know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, people who are only interested in just, you know, solving a practical problem with the best algorithm that they can find for that problem, they might not call themselves complexity theorists. Right. You know, they would, they're just they would they might just be algorithms people. But as soon as you start asking the question, you know, what is the best algorithm for this task? You know, in terms of uh, uh, the scaling of resources as the input gets larger and larger, you know, how do I know that it's the best algorithm? Right. Uh, uh, you know, what what what, what, uh, what else would it imply if there were a faster algorithm? Okay, as soon as you start asking things like that, then you're doing complexity theory. It sounds like it's easy to show that something is a more efficient algorithm than another, but to show that something is the best, yes. how do you go about doing that? Yes. Well, uh, good question. Uh, you know, the field has been struggling with that for half a century. Uh, so yeah, uh, in, in order to give a faster, you know, in order to show that there is a faster algorithm to solve a given problem, typically the way you do it is you just give that algorithm. You know, you uh, you give it, you know, and, that, and that, that that could already be very non-trivial because you have to analyze the algorithm, you have to prove that it works, and you have to prove that it actually terminates after this reasonable amount of time. Okay, so that can that can already be be non-trivial. Okay, but but now you know, if you ask, is this the best algorithm? You know, how do we know it's the best? Okay, now you're trying to prove a negative, right? And that is inherently, you know, a, a vastly harder undertaking. Um, and, and, you know, in, in some sense, you know, the, you know, the main reason why we, we view it as a, as a, as, as a goal to strive for at all is that, you know, computer science, uh, uh, uh was, was sort of born, you know, with, with knowledge about its own limitations, right? When mm, Alan, uh -huh. when, when Alan Turing, you know, introduced the, you know, the Turing machine, which is, you know, sort of the, the mathematical model for what a computer is, uh, in the 1930s, you know, he also, uh, as sort of, uh, uh, you know, the key uh, application of his new theory, you know, he proved that certain problems are not solvable by any Turing machine, right, in any amount of time. Okay, this was the famous uh, unsolvability of the halting problem. Okay, and it, it built uh, on Gödel's incompleteness theorem, you know, which had been proved just uh, uh, five years prior. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's now a, a statement that uh, you know, for for certain problems, uh, and and the famous example is the halting problem, right? I give you a program, and you have to determine whether it ever stops running. Say when 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 run on a, a, a on a blank input, and. Uh, uh, you know, and there, 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 and and Turing showed that there is no program to solve this problem in any amount of time, and 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 the argument is basically self-referential. Okay, you say, well, suppose that there were such an algorithm, then we could contrive things in such a way that that algorithm would be fed its own code as input, and then it would have to do the opposite of whatever it does. So, like, if it halts, then it would have to, you know, when, when run on itself as input, then it would have to run forever. And if it runs forever when run on itself as input, then it would have to halt. And since, you know, that's a contradiction, the only conclusion is, th is that the program can't have existed. Okay. And so, so, you know, we've known since the beginning of computer science that you can use these sort of self-referential methods to, uh, to understand something about the limitations, you know, of any algorithm. Right. In a, in a kind of magical way, you know, without having to roll up your sleeves and delve into the details of, uh, of what the Turing machine is doing. Right. And then, you know, in the 1960s, um, 
um, you know, some of the first complexity theorists, like Joris uh, 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 Hartmanis, who uh, passed away recently, and, uh, and Richard Stearns, uh, managed to go further. And they, 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 they used similar self-referential arguments to show, for example, that there are problems involving n-bit uh, uh, inputs that are solvable in n-cubed steps, but are not solvable in n-squared steps. Okay, there are other problems that are solvable in n to the fourth steps, but not in n cubed steps, uh-huh. you know, and so Can on. Can you give an example? Yeah, uh, the simplest example would just be: I give you a program, and now you have to decide whether it halts in n to the fourth steps or not. <laughs> that, okay, that is solvable in slightly more than n to the fourth steps, but you know, a sort of scaled down version of Turing's argument shows that it is not solvable in n cubed steps. And basically, basically, because if it were, then the program could predict what it itself is going to do faster than it can do it. Okay, and it's kind of like you know, the like like you know, uh, 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 this is like a, a paradox that a, a five-year-old could understand. It's like you know, if I can, you know, if I if I knew for certain, you know, whether I'm going to raise one finger or two fingers, you know, ten seconds from now, then I could just resolve to do the opposite. Of whatever I predicted yes, I would do, yes. right? and so you know, so and 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 so and so that's not possible. To you, does this touch on free will? Uh, some people think it does. I mean, I mean, I tend to think that you know, if 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 there were a computer in another room, you know, and and you know, it ran faster than my brain does, and it perfectly predicted what I was going to do before I do it, and you know, maybe it just it leaves its prediction in a sealed envelope. You know, but then after I take the action, then we can open the envelope and we can see that it perfectly predicted what I would do. I would say, you know, that that would that would really profoundly shake my my sense of free will. You know, just speaking speaking personally, right? And and I would say that based on the known laws of physics, uh, we don't actually know whether that prediction machine can exist or not. Right. It it comes mm-hmm. down to, you know, questions about how accurately would you have to scan someone's brain? Would you have to go all the way down to the quantum mechanical level? You know, would that not be necessary? Right. And 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 I would say that that, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that most people don't realize is that this is an empirical question. You know, who's who, who's who's, you know, maybe who's whose answer will someday know. But 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 we don't know it yet. And that's the that's sort of, you know, what, what I would advocate as the best sort of empirical replacement for the free will question. Right. And, and if you if you accepted that, then it's it's, uh, you know, the fact that I myself can't predict, you know, my future actions is not really uh, the core of the matter. You know, the question is just whether any machine could do it. Yeah, why is the sealed envelope important? Well, just because, because well, because 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 if I saw if I saw the prediction, then I could resolve to do the opposite. Yeah. So if this machine existed, does it still say something about your free will if you were able to look at it and you could go against the wishes of the machine or the predictions of it? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, you could say if that machine cannot be reliably built, you know, if any attempt to build it consistent with the laws of physics, you know, fails then that seems to me like about as far as science, you know, could possibly go in saying that, well, you know, there seems to be something that, that, you know, you know, that, uh, 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 that, 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 that corresponds to part of what we mean by free will, right? There is this inherent unpredictability to our actions. Um, and, you know, and, and conversely, if the machine did exist, then that seems to be, to me, like about as far as science could possibly go to, towards saying, you know, actually, you know, free will is an illusion. 
right? Not, mm. you know, not just be, be in some abstract metaphysical way, but because, you know, here is the machine that predicts what you will do. You know, look at it, try it out. Yeah, you had a blog post on Newcomb's Paradox. Yes. Can you please outline it and then what your proposed resolution is, if it exists? Sure. Uh, a Newcomb's Paradox is the thing where, uh, you know, we imagine this super intelligent predictor, you know, just like I was talking about before, you know, that this, this sort of machine or being that, that you know, knows what, what, you know, you're going to do before you do it. And uh, it, it, it puts two boxes on a table. Okay. And inside of the first box, you know, there might be nothing and there might be a million dollars. Okay. And inside of the second box, there is definitely a thousand dollars. And now you have a choice. Uh, you can either take the, the first box only, or you can take both of the boxes. Okay. But now the predictor, uh, the, the, the catch is that the predictor, um, you know, has told you in advance that if it predicts that you're going to take both boxes, then it, leaves the then it will leave the first box empty so it punishes greed yes right if if it predicts that you're going to take only the first box then it puts a million dollars in it okay so and and let's say that the predictor has played this game with you know a thousand people before you and it's never been wrong right so then then you know well, what do you do 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 you you know as as, as you know the, the people have actually made it into verbs you know do you one box or do you two box in the, mm-hmm, okay. in the in the newcomb paradox and uh uh you know and, and there seem to be like basic principles of rationality that you know that you could use to 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 prove either answer is correct right uh, on the one hand you know everyone who takes only the first box ends up you know about a million dollars richer <laughs> than the, than the people who who try to take both right and you know by the, the the whole setup of the problem is that you know you know that that's because the predictor knew and you know and so forth but on the other hand you know the the by the time you're contemplating your decision the million dollars is either in the box or not right and so how could your decision possibly affect you know what is in the box it would seem like it would have to be a, a backwards in time causation Right. And therefore, you know, you know, whatever is in the first box, you're going to have a thousand dollars more than that if you take both boxes. And therefore, you should take both. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, so we can prove two contradictory answers. You know, that is the basic setup of a paradox. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and people have argued about this for half a century. There is an enormous literature on this problem uh, and, you know, many different points of view. Um, you know, I had a blog post back in 2006 where, um, you know, I, I suggested like, like, well, what, 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 what seemed to me like the natural resolution of this. And, and since then, you know, I've learned that, that you know, that, that, that other people have had broadly similar ideas, but, you know, so, so some of them do cite that blog post of mine, but, uh, uh, but, you know, my, my resolution of the paradox was, okay, I, I think that, you know, in this scenario, you should take one box right? You should, you should, you should one box. Okay. But the question is why, right? The question is, uh, uh how can we possibly explain how, how your decision to one box, c- uh, could affect the, the predictor could affect, you know, whether the predictor puts the money in the box. Okay. And now the key is, well, you know, we have to think harder about what the world would, w- w- uh, uh, would be like with this predictor in it, right? The predictor, you know, contains within it a perfect simulation of you. 
right? I mean, whatever you're going to base your decision on, you know, whatever childhood memory, whatever, you know, detail of, of, of your, of your brain function, you know, the predictor knows all of it, right? By, you know, by, by hypothesis, right? But, but, uh, but the way that I would describe that is that the predictor has effectively brought into being a second copy of you, a second instantiation of you, right? And now, you know, the key is that as you're contemplating your decision, whether to one box or two box, uh, you know, you have to think, think of yourself as, as, as somehow, you know, being, being both versions of you at once, right? Or, you know, uh, or, 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 perha- or perhaps, you know, you don't know which one you are. Right. If you are the simulation being run by the predictor, well, then, of course, your decision can affect what the predictor does. Uh, so so, you know, you don't even, you know, you know, in the scenario, you know, you know, that, that, that was hypothesized, like you have to be radically uncertain about where you physically are, about what time it is. Right. Like th- these are the kinds of things that you have to worry about in a world where there really could be perfect predictors of yourself. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, a different, you know, a, a much uh, a more boring resolution would be to say, well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to worry about Newcomb's paradox because I believe that this predictor cannot exist at all. <laughs> right. It's, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, uh, and, and, um, you know, I, 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 as I said, I regard that as an empirical question to which we don't yet know the answer. Two concepts that I see as related are the no cloning theorem yes. and computational irreducibility. So this is something popularized by Wolfram, yeah. which I know you know, so I'll get you to explain it to the audience. But the no cloning may have implications that such a machine can't exist because it can't be a perfect copy of you. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so yeah. So, so I, by the way, no cloning and computational irreducibility are two totally different things. You know, we can, we can, we, we, we can talk about both of them. Okay. But the no cloning theorem is just a very, very basic fact about quantum mechanics. Okay. And it says that there is no physical operation that you can do that takes as input an arbitrary quantum state, 
you know, an unknown quantum state, like let's say a, a qubit, you know, a quantum bit, a superposition of a, you know, a zero and a one, okay, and that produces as output uh, two identical copies of that state, okay? So there is no quantum Xerox machine that is possible, right? The right, ability right. to make perfect copies of things, this is fundamentally, you know, a classical phenomenon, right? It is, it is not true quantumly. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sure you've heard of Leibniz's law of indiscernible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this isn't that. No. This isn't saying no. like, look, this is this is this is a this is th- this is this is a fact about physics, you know, that could have been false, right? But you know, it is true because you know, uh, for for a century, every experiment has you know told us that quantum mechanics is true, and you know, as long as quantum mechanics remains the basis of physics, then you know, then then this is true. But it's not something that is a priori knowable. Okay, and so the sense of the sense of copying that I mean is, is is copying the information. Okay, so think about classical bits. Right, we all know that classical bits can be copied. Right, if you have, you know, this is this has been the bane of the music industry and the software industry. <laughs> right. You know, if you have a file, right, you can make a copy yeah. of that file. Right, you know, it won't be, you know, you know, it'll have a different physical representation. You know, somewhere else in a in your computer's memory or in a different computer's memory, you know, but it will encode the same bits of information. Okay. So Napster exists because the no cloning theorem is purely quantum? Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. So, so classical information can be copied. Okay. But what we're saying uh, is that, is that in quantum mechanics, you know, even uh, the, the information cannot be copied. Okay. So, so quantum, we have to take a step back and say, you know, what is quantum information? Right. It's uh, uh, based, you know, the, the, the basic building block in quantum information is, is you know, what, what's called this quantum bit or qubit. OK. And this is a bit that, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be definitely zero or definitely one, you know, and and it, and, 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 you know, and, and it, once people hear that, then they say, oh, well, then, you know, that just sounds like a fancy way of saying, well, it's either zero or it's one and you don't know which it is. Right. But, you know, we, you know, we, 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 we know how to deal with that classically. Right. We could, you know, we, we could have a, a random bit, you know, a bit that has like a 40% chance of being one and a 60% chance of being zero. And until you look, you don't know which it is. So you kind of have to think about both possibilities. But then once you look, you know. Right. Okay. Now, now that is not a qubit. Right. Qubit is more interesting than that. Okay. Because what the, the key thing that quantum mechanics says, uh, is that uh, to every possible configuration that a system could be in, like you know zero or one in the case of a bit, uh, you have to assign uh, not just a probability, you have to assign a complex number. Okay, uh-huh. these complex numbers are called amplitudes. Okay, they're they're the basic quantities of quantum mechanics, right? And so so for example, uh, a qubit, a quantum bit, might have a uh, a square root of a half amplitude to be zero and it might have a minus square root of a half amplitude to be one okay the now now the the um or you know they 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 could they could actually be uh, complex numbers you know a real plus an imaginary number okay and now when i make a measurement uh then these amplitudes convert into probabilities and and the way they do that is one of the most famous rules in all of physics it's called the born rule it says that the probability that I see a particular outcome 
is equal to the square of the absolute value of the amplitude for that outcome, right? So if I had like an equal superposition, you know, zero plus one divided by the square root of, you know, the, the qubit zero, you know, plus the qubit one divided by the square root of two, Okay, uh, uh, you know, and then I measure it, then I'm going to see zero or one equally likely. Okay, but uh, there are other things that I can do besides just measuring the qubit to ask it whether it is zero or one. Okay, I can, tr uh, um, you know, when the qubit is isolated, then these amplitudes can change in time by by rules that are that are not familiar to our experience. Um, uh, you know, in particular, I can take the the list of all the amplitudes of all the possible states, and I can uh, uh, do something to to my my system, you know, my particles or whatever that has the effect of doing a linear transformation on that list of amplitudes. Right. So so you know, there's uh, like you could say in some sense what 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 you know quantum mechanics tells us is that is that you know uh, uh, the, the the operating system of the universe is linear algebra. You know, it's mm -hmm. matrices and mm -hmm. vectors, right? My my states are these vectors of amplitudes, these lists of complex numbers. My uh, time evolution, the way the state changes over time while it's isolated, is that uh, I, I apply what's called a, a norm-preserving linear transformation, you know, or, or also called a unitary transformation. Okay, these are like linear transformations, matrices, that always map unit vectors to other unit vectors. Right, so they always preserve the length of the vector. Okay, but an example would be a rotation. Right, like I could take a uh, a qubit, you know, that is some intermediate state between zero and one. Right, somewhere on like the 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 unit circle where you know here's zero, here's one, here's minus zero, here's minus you know minus one, and I could rotate by a certain fixed angle. Right, or I could reflect about an axis. Okay, these are unitary transformations that I can do, you know, and then I measure and then I, I uh, you know, measurement is a destructive operation. It sort of collapses me to a single outcome. Uh, but, but now, you know, the, the, the key phenomenon that, you know, that, that, you know, told physicists that, you know, that the world works this way in, in the first place uh, a century ago. Okay. And that, you know, and, and it is sort of the signature that something quantum is going on is called interference. Okay, so now if I want to know, let's say, you know, how likely is a particle to hit a certain spot on a screen, right? Then, you know, I have to, well, I have to calculate the amplitude for that thing to happen, right? Uh, you know, and then take a, the, the, the squared absolute value and that gives me the probability. Okay, but the amplitude is a sum of a whole bunch of contributions. Okay, one from every possible path that the photon could have taken. Or the particle could have taken in order to reach, you know, mm. this this endpoint, right? And now, if some of those paths that it could have taken have make a positive contribution, and others make a negative contribution, then they can interfere destructively and cancel each other out. Meaning, like the total amplitude will be zero, and then the particle will never be found there at all, right? Whereas, you know, and here's the, cra the, the, the even crazier part. If I close off one of the paths, like, you know, like the, you know, the famous two slit experiment, where there are two slits that this particle could go through. If I block one of the two slits, well, now uh, I only have a positive contribution or only a negative contribution, you know, depending on which slit I blocked. So now the particle can appear at that, at that end point. Okay. So to say it again, by decreasing the number of paths that a particle can take, 
to get somewhere, I can increase the chance that it gets there. Okay. That is something that, you know, just, 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 you know, forget about all the, the, the low level details of physics, right? That could never happen if the world were described by conventional probability theory, right? That, you know, that is sort of the sign that, that we have, you know, that, that, uh, to actually describe what physics is doing, we need different rules of probability. Okay. Which is, which is a, you know, a much more fundamental thing than, you know, than, than you might have imagined, uh, the laws of physics even talking about at all. Yeah. Right? But, uh, but they do. And, and so, so now, you know, okay. So now, now we can come back to the no cloning theorem since you asked about it. Uh, now, uh, you know, a, 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 a qubit is going to have some state like a times, you know, uh, uh, the, the qubit zero plus B times the qubit one. Right, where A and B are amplitudes. Okay, so so uh, you know the state of one qubit is des- is described by a two-dimensional vector. You know, a list of two complex numbers, A and B. Okay, now what would it mean to make a copy of the qubit? Right, it would mean that well, now you know what at the other end I should have two qubits that are both in the state A zero plus B one. Right. Okay, and now okay, uh, and 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 the way that. In quantum mechanics, the way that we describe sort of two systems that are just sitting there next to each other and that are, you know, separate from each other, that haven't interacted, right? It's a mathematical operation called the tensor product, okay? But it basically just means, you know, we we take like component-wise multiplication. So if I have A0 plus B1, you know, for my first qubit times A0 plus B1 for my second qubit, Okay, then I can, you know, just like in in uh, middle school algebra, you know, I can expand it out and I can say that's an amplitude of A squared for the qubits to both be zero. That's an amplitude of AB for the qubits to be zero and then one. It's an amplitude of AB for the qubits to be one and then zero. And it's an amplitude of B squared for the qubits to both be one, Right. So now I have a, a new vector. I want you know, a squared, a b, a b, and b squared. Okay. But now that we know that, now now we've proved the no cloning theorem. Okay. Why have we proved it? Well, because that transformation that we just asked for is a nonlinear transformation. Okay. It you know the amplitudes you know a and b you know were not replaced by linear functions of a and b. They were replaced by nonlinear functions such as a squared or, you know, B squared. And that is a thing that unitary evolution in quantum mechanics cannot do. Okay. And so, you know, so, so, you know, the way to, you know, there, 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 there are other ways to prove the no cloning theorem. Okay. But, but, you know, one, one way to prove it is, is really as simple as that. I see. Now computational irreducibility. And then also what all of this has to do with Newcomb's paradox. All right. All right. All right. So, I mean, computational irreducibility is just, you know, a term that Stephen Wolfram uses for, uh, uh, you know, I would say, you know, a basic phenomenon that was, you know, known to many people uh, before Wolfram. You know, he likes to, uh, uh, you know, treat everything as 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 as, as his invention. But, uh, uh, you know, it is, um, you know, the 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 fact that that you know, for many many. Uh, 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 systems that are computationally universal, like, you know, we cannot figure out how to, you know, predict their behavior faster than just by simulating the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there are, you know, in some sense, science has gotten all, you know, uh, as much leverage as it has 
over the past 400 years because, you know, often, uh, uh, you know, we can uh, uh, model a system, you know, by something that is simpler than the system itself. Right. Uh, so, you know, the orbits of, you know, the planets around the sun, the orbit of the moon around the earth. Right. You know, uh, uh, Kepler said, you know, these look to me like like ellipses. Right. And then Newton explained, you know, from from a single simple, you know, law of gravitation and from laws of motion. Right. He explained why they should look like ellipses. Right. And and uh, and and, you know, and then, you know, you can you can predict you know, in, in some cases, what the planets are going to be doing millions of years from now, right? Because, you know, the system is simple enough, okay? But, you know, there are many other uh, systems, you know, you, we, could, we could take a, a lava lamp, for example, or, or, or the weather, right? Where, uh, you know, there is just so much dependence on the fine details of, of, of the system state at any one time that, you know, if you try to uh, uh, run a prediction, you know, to a, to a, a future time, then, you know, your, your prediction will, uh, uh, you know, before long uh, diverge from reality. Okay, this is, you know, the famous butterfly effect. Right. That, you know, unless, you know, you know, the exact state of every particle and can then feed that into your computer. Right. Then, you know, like a small error, you know, whatever small error you make in, in, in knowing the current state is going to blow up exponentially over time. Okay, that's the you know, basic phenomenon of chaos. And computational irreducibility, you know, I think it's just, you know, the term that Wolfram uses for like, you know, the analog of chaos in, in discrete systems like cellular automata. Great. And so what does that have to do with free will and newcomers? Well, okay. I mean, I mean, what, what, what I would say is that if there is a, you know, some deep reason why the prediction machine cannot be built, you know, why the newcomb predictor cannot exist, then, you know, the, the only candidate that I can put forward, you know, based on, you know, the uh, 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 physics and neuroscience and so forth that I know about is to say, well, maybe, you know, in order to make, you know, a, a well-calibrated prediction of what a person is going to do, you know, you would really have to know, you know, not just like a, a crude approximation of the state of their brain, you know, which could mean like, like knowing the connectivity pattern of the neurons, you know, knowing the strengths of each uh, synaptic link, you know, and, and so forth, right? Maybe that's not good enough, okay? You know, maybe you need to know, like, like you know, is this individual neuron going to fire or not, right, at, at this time, right? Because, you know, I, I mean, a, a single neuron firing or, or, or not firing could certainly trigger a cascade, you know, of, uh, you know, of chaotic effects, right? Maybe if this neuron fires, it causes 10 neurons to fire, which in turn cause 100 neurons to fire and so forth. And, and before long, uh, you know, you're going, uh, um, you're, you're, uh, you know, going, uh, um, um, go, uh, going into industry rather than, you know, becoming a professor or you're, you know, <laughs> right. okay. you've, you've, made, you've made a different uh, choice for your, for your, or you're marrying a, a different person. Yeah, so a cosmic ray is responsible for Scott not being a quant. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the, this this is the question, right? You know, like what is the smallest change that you could have made? You know, and and this is this is a standard trope of like you know time travel stories in science fiction, right? Like when you go back in time, you know, if you change even the tiniest thing, I mean, you know, like like usually they you know they're like, oh, we have to walk very carefully and not kick any of the rocks. It's like okay, well, you know, that's kind of silly if you believe this at all. Then you know the very fact that you're there, you know, disturbing the air molecules, you know, you're, you know, it's like, forget it, you know, you've already completely right. changed the future.
right? But uh, but but okay, you know now now if if we really need to know whether a single neuron you know fires or or, or not, well you know we know that the the sodium ion channels you know that that control that right are modeled uh, well in neuroscience by something called the Hodgkin-Huxley equations, okay, which is a stochastic differential equation, okay, so it has a noise component, right? And you know the neuroscientists would probably say, well you know we just treat it as thermal noise, right? We just treat it as you know a bunch of molecules are bumping around randomly and that you know somehow uh, uh, you know sometimes it makes the sodium ion channel open and other times it makes it close right but if you really needed to you know m- m- make an exact prediction well then uh, uh, may- may- maybe uh, you need to uh, you know to know the states of all these particles so precisely that you know you would have to violate the no cloning theorem Right. So, you know, let's, mm. let's be clear. You know, I don't know if that is true. I regard this as, as, you know, at least partly an empirical question. Right. You know, you like someone could address it by trying to build a, you know, a brain duplication device, you know, trying to build a prediction machine. Right. And, you know, if they succeed, then, you know, we'll know that the answer was one thing. Okay. But, uh, um, you know, there, I mean, there is also a philosophical question here. Uh, I, I should admit, of like how how good or how accurate does the copy have to be before you will accept that copy as sort of being, you know, a new version of you. Right. So you know, this is this is uh, uh, you know the famous thought experiment here is like uh, imagine that someone you know has built a teleportation machine, right, and you know that can teleport you to Mars. Okay, you can visit Mars in, you know, only, only, you know, only 10 minutes transit time, right? But, you know, the way that it works is that you will get, you know, your brain will get scanned in as pure information. That information will get sent to Mars. You know, on Mars, a machine will reconstitute you from that information. And then the original version of you on Earth, well, you know, that'll just be painlessly euthanized something right and so now you know the question is do you agree to go in that machine right is that a means of travel that uh that you are comfortable with right uh and you know i think well you know it might you know depend on the details of you know just how accurate you know is this copy right is it uh uh you know is it is is it really perfect is it you know is it just good enough you know and, and these are you know like like you know there have been philosophical thought experiments about this kind of thing for generations okay but you know we we can already see with you know gpt for example with the you know with the ais that that uh, have come online within the last few years that you know these questions are going to come up like uh uh, uh you know you you know t- take a person who has some giant corpus of work you know, tens of thousands of postings on the internet, right? And then, you know, you can train a model, you could train a language model to emulate that person, you know, as, as well as it can. As, you know, a, a character.ai and uh, companies like that are already doing in a kind of crude way, you know, they, they let you, you know, talk to Einstein, talk to Taylor Swift, talk to Socrates or whatever, right? But, you know, I, 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 I um, didn't find it that engrossing. They all kind of sounded the same to me. They all kind, you know, kind right. of sounded just like different language models. Okay, but, but, but imagine that that gets better, right? Imagine that, like, like you know, you make this, this doppelganger of yourself and then, you know, you, uh, you lay in bed all day and you get up and you see what it's done and you say, yeah, you know, those are, those are totally the things that I would have done. 
right? You know, how, how good does it have to be before you accept it as a, as a replacement for yourself? Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Do we need to go as far as a teleportation thought experiment to Mars? Because even when you move a sub-millimeter amount, it could technically be that you just got destroyed in an instant and then was just reconstituted a submillimeter further. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, there, so, so, so there is that, that philosophical question, right. Of, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, are, are we constantly just, you know, being destroyed and recreated or, you know, should we, should we think about it that way? Uh, now, um, um, you know, we, we, you know, we certainly in ordinary life, we don't think about, you know, I get on a bus, I get on a plane, you know, I, I move around as something that is destroying and reconstituting me. Right. But now, you know, the, the, you know, if, if you really want to get, uh, confused about this, you can think about a, qu- a quantum teleportation. Right. So, so there is a protocol by which you can transfer, you know, a quantum state from one place to a different place, okay? If you have two resources, you know, number one is just classical communication, you know, the ability to send conventional bits, like let's say uh, uh, over the internet, for example, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty, and, and the second resource is you need pre-shared quantum entanglement, okay? So you need like, like the, the, you know, the sender and the receiver location to, ha- to have pre-shared um, um, entangled quantum states, you know, that are, that okay. were, that were sort of correlated with each other, uh, uh, beforehand. But if you have both of those things, there is this amazing protocol that was discovered, uh, 30 years ago. Okay. That, uh, where you, you measure one co- you know, you measure your quantum state, let's say Alice, you know, over on the left side measures her state, you know, as, uh, uh, together with her, her, uh, uh, entangled particle. And then she gets two bits of information that she sends over the internet to Bob, and then Bob, using those bits, uh, uh, applies some correction operations to his entangled particle. And now, voila, he now has exactly the same quantum state that, uh, um, that, that, that Alice had had before. 
Okay. Now, now, you know, you might say like, like, how is this possible? You know, was information sent faster than light? Well, no, no, it wasn't because, you know, we had to send these classical bits, right? And those only moved at the speed of light. So, you know, this is consistent with relativity. And then the, the next thing you could ask was, well, well, did this violate the no cloning theorem? Right. Because I had my quantum state and now somehow a new copy of the quantum state has popped up uh, over at Bob's end. Okay. But, uh, the key is in order for this to work, uh, Alice had to make a measurement that destroyed her copy of the state. And does Alice know her copy of the state before? No, she, she doesn't. She, she, so she, she doesn't she even know what she's sending. Right. Exactly. She doesn't have to know. She doesn't have to know. She doesn't have to know or she can't know. She, she can know, but she doesn't have to. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. And then you know, Bob just ends up with a new copy of the sa- uh, 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 of the same state, whatever it was. Okay. And so, so you 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 could say, you know, uh, would you agree to be quantumly teleported to Mars? Right. Well, in that case, you know, that's that sounds potentially uh, uh, better or safer than just being re- you know sent as classical information, because in that case, it really is the same quantum state that would be reconstituted on Mars, right? You know, just like it would have been if you had just gotten into a spaceship and traveled to Mars in a conventional way. Yeah. All right, (laughs) great. Do you have a preferred interpretation of quantum mechanics? Uh, Well, um, so, so, um, you know, there is... uh, um, Actually, if your views on this have changed, then it would be great to outline what they were prior and what changed them. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, I mean, usually, you know, when, when I, when I teach this, you know, teach quantum mechanics to, to undergrads in my, you know, quantum computing and information class, you know, I try to teach it like comparative religion. Uh, uh, you know, I try to, you know, I try to not tip my hand about, you know, which interpretation I'm leaning toward, but, but I've discovered something interesting over, you know, in, in, in recent years, which is that, uh, uh, it's, it's really hard to not, you know, make the majority of the students into many worlders. You know, once they once they see the issue, you know, the the pros and cons laid out, then kind of the 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 the, you know, and then and then we you know, we we ask, you know, as an ungraded question on the final, we ask, you know, what's your mm. favorite interpretation? And then, you know, a, a consistently a majority uh, say that there are many worlders. Okay, so just to just to just to back up, you know, many worlds interpretation is just the one that says, you know, that the the wave function, which is this list of amplitudes you know, for all the possibilities, you know, that, that you could get, that is the fundamental reality, right? That is, you know, what the universe is. It is this list of amplitudes, right? And, you know, it, it, it uh, evolves in time just by, by these, this unitary evolution. And, and, you know, the many worlders would say, you know, that, that measurement you know, is not real, right? Measure, or me- measurement is sort of our local perception, you know, from our local point of view, right? But it's not really a, a fundamental law of physics. Okay, so 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 if you know, the, and 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 there, there's a sense in which that is, you know, the 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 mathematically simplest or nicest picture that you could have, mm-hmm. right? Where it's just all unitary evolution, which is continuous. It's uh, reversible. It's um, um, uh, it's it's deterministic. Right. You know, you don't have these weird probabilistic, you know, irreversible jumps. You don't have any of that. Okay. But, but, but the cost for, for, for saying that is that, is that now, uh, uh, if let's say, you know, there's some qubit that's in a superposition of zero and one 
and then we make a measurement of it. Okay, then then the the way you have to describe that, you know, by unitary evolution, is that the the whole system consisting of you know the qubit and the measuring device and me, you know, are now going to evolve to a new quantum state. Okay, and that state will have two components, and in one of the components, the qubit is zero. And the measuring device registered it as, as zero, and my brain, you know, I looked at it and I saw the zero, right? And in the other branch, you know, the qubit was in the state one, and the measuring device registered it as one, and and my brain, you know, saw that. Okay, so so you're you're led to this prediction, you know, that the universe is sort of constantly splitting into branches, you know, as it were, uh, or at least, you know, what, what, you know, what, 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 what we would regard as sort of different, uh, uh, approximately classical universes. Okay. And where, where, you know, our, our lives could, 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 uh, could turn out differently. Right. And, uh, uh, and, and so, you know, in, in, in some sense, like, like, you know, if, if, if you just treat, you know, if, if you were to treat like the qubit, Plus, you know, all of the, the atoms in the measuring device and all of the atoms in your body as just all quantum mechanical systems, right? All just obeying the same Schrodinger equation, the same laws of, you know, of unitary physics and nothing ever gets singled out as being an observer or, you know, or uh-huh. having this sort of special uh, uh, role, then like that, that is the prediction that you, you know, that, 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 that you would get. You know, and and so now, like uh, in some sense, the whole interpretation problem of quantum mechanics is what do you do with that fact? Okay, and so now you know that there 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 are you know a few different approaches. The original approach of you know Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg and most of the other founders of quantum mechanics was to say, well, well, then then uh, um. Uh, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 this wave function, this list of amplitudes is not real, right? It's just a mental device in our heads that we are using in order to calculate the probability that we will see this outcome or that one, right? What is real is like, you know, what we see when we make a measurement, right? Yeah. Uh, and so then, you know, they, they would tend to say, you know, there is the classical world that we live in. And then there is the quantum world, you know, which is the subatomic world. And measurement is somehow an interface between the two worlds, right? But then the problem that, that you know, that, that that's called the Copenhagen interpretation, right? But the problem that Copenhagen has always had is where do you actually draw the uh, the boundary between the quantum world and the classical world? Right. Uh, you know, and like nowadays we can take much bigger systems and we can put them in superposition states, like even molecules with, you know, thousands of atoms in them. We can put in a superposition of going one way and going another way. Nothing as big as a Schrodinger cat, you know, uh, uh, yet, but, you know, but, but like after a century, no one has discovered any fundamental obstruction to, you know, scaling up superpositions arbitrarily. Right. And, you know, and, 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 and quantum computing, you know, feeds into this discussion as well, because if you can build a scalable, you know, error corrected quantum computer, then you could have like millions or billions of qubits that are all, you know, uh, um, you know, in, 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 in a superposition of like, you know, two, you know, two different states. Like, you know, if you even loaded an AI program onto that quantum computer, and if, you know, the AI were conscious, then it could even be in a superposition of thinking one thought and thinking a different thought, 
right? So, you know, which, which, which was the original thought experiment that sort of led uh, David Deutsch to, you know, propose uh, the ideas of quantum computing in the first place uh, in, the, in, the, in the late 1970s, right? So, so, the, so the question is like, where does the buck stop? Right. And, you know, and the Copenhagen approach has basically been to say, well, you know, there are certain questions that you're not allowed to ask. Right. Uh, you know, you just, you know, uh, you know, you know, the, to say that, 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 you know, we, we know a priori what it means to measure something and get a classical outcome. This is just a precondition of doing science. And so we have to just assume this. Right. And, you know, you could say like th- that was an answer that was bound to not satisfy everyone forever. Right. But, you know, you could say that that that's sort of option one. I, I, I view it as kind of kind of the the, the giving up option. Right. You just yeah. say, you know, the theory, you know, you know, you know, it works for experiments and, and we're not going to 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 uh, uh, treat the whole universe, including ourselves, quantum mechanically. We're not even going to try to to understand that. Uh, and then a second approach would be to say, yes, there is this whole wave function. Right. There is this whole. Uh, um uh, 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 you know, list of amplitudes for every possible outcome, but also, you know, there is one particular branch that is the real one, you know, that is the, you know, the, the one of actual experience, right? And, and, and so like you have this giant ocean of, of amplitudes, but then there's also a cork in the ocean that just gets pushed around by the waves, right? In a way that matches the predictions of quantum mechanics, the Born rule. Right, that is what uh, David Bohm tried to do, and uh, and Louis de Broglie. Right, this is called the pilot wave or the de Broglie-Bohm uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics. Okay, and uh, you know, and 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 there were many different versions of it because you know you can write down like thousands of different such rules for how the quark is going to go that will all make that will all end up with the same predictions for any experiment that we can do. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, a third point of view, you know, would, you know, would be, you know, many worlds where you just bite the bullet. Okay. And you say the wave function is real and I refuse to introduce any additional ingredient, like any cork in this ocean. Right. Which means I'm not going to regard the other branches as any less real than my branch. Right. I regard all, you know, all of them as, as existing. Right. You know, I can't talk mm-hmm. to the other branches. You know, the fact that quantum mechanics is linear is the thing that prevents me from communicating with the other branches. Right. But, you know, you know, if they're if they're there in the in the equations, you know, if they're there in the theory, then I'm going to say that they're 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 just as real as 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 whichever branch uh, you and I happen to experience. And then, you know, the fourth outcome, or sorry, the, the fourth option would be to say, well, none of these I- ideas are any good. <laughs> none of these interpretations, you know, uh, is acceptable. And, and therefore, you know, there must be something wrong with quantum mechanics itself, right? And, and hopefully in the future, we'll discover a better theory of physics that, you know, says, okay, here is when the, the quantum state collapses. It happens when it gets this big or this massive, and there will just be some objective, testable law of physics that describes the collapse process. Okay, now that would be something new, right? That would be, that's not an interpretation. That would be a new and different physical theory that would overturn quantum mechanics as, as we know it today, right? But you can say, well, you know, then, then that, that, that has to be the truth. You know, quantum mechanics has to just be an approximation to some better theory uh, that hasn't been discovered yet. Um, 
So, you know, uh, you, you ask, you know, what I'm partial to, you know, I'm kind of partial to uh, an idea by uh, um, the physicists uh, Lenny Susskind and Raphael Busso from a decade ago, uh, which is that uh, cosmology uh, m- might be an important part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you could say that, you know, the, the, uh, the big, you know, one of, one of the main problems, you know, for, for anyone who is trying to interpret quantum mechanics is to specify, you know, when does a measurement happen, right? You know, when does, when does the buck stop and when should I regard, you know, the, this, this superposition of outcomes as having resolved into one or the other definite outcome, right? You know, like the, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the many worlders, you know, might say, well, well, there's no, there's no one right answer to that question, right? It just, it's kind of like asking like how many grains of sand do I have to put together until it's a heap of sand? Exactly. Right. You know, but, uh, uh, but, you know, even, even they might want a rough and ready rule for, for when, for, for, for when, when, when we can treat an outcome as definite. Okay. And now here is one possibility for such a rule. Okay. So, so, you know, when you make a measurement, right, it's not just your brain that becomes entangled with, you know, the, the qubits or the, the particles that you measure, right? It's also, it's the air in the room that you're in, right? And the radiation in the room, right? You know, like, like, uh, you know, it, it, you know, there's a, there, there's a butterfly effect that happens, right? Like each thing, you know, each, each particle starts knocking around the nearby particles. And, uh, so there's a whole, uh, 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 you know, bubble of, of, of effects of, 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 of whatever the outcome of that measurement was that spreads outward, you know, from you, uh, you know, no faster than the speed of light, but, you know, but, 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 uh, you know, as soon as the information gets encoded into photons, then possibly, you know, this, this, this sphere of, of, uh, uh, of effects is expanding around you at the speed of light. Right. And and once once the information about which measurement outcome you saw is encoded into photons that are leaving the Earth. Right. And that are flying away from the Earth at the speed of light. Right. Which eventually they will be. Then you could say, well, even in principle, we could never catch those again, you know, as we would need if we wanted to recohere the superposition. You know, if we wanted to, uh, uh, like show that, 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 uh, 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 you know, see, 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 see any effect of the other outcome of, 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 of the one that we didn't measure. Right. So, you know, in order to get interference, you have to collect all of the qubits that were affected. Mm. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, if many of those qubits are flying away from us at the speed of light, well, then you can say, you know, how could we ever catch them again? Well, if there were some extraterrestrials who had thought to like uh, enclose the solar system in perfectly reflecting mirrors, right? Well, then okay, then then the photons are going to bounce back, and then maybe we could recohere, and we could see that this is still a quantum superposition. But you know, I uh, I will I will assume that that that, that aliens have not done that, <laughs> right? Uh, that you know that does not seem to be uh, the case in, in our universe. Okay, and, and then you get into questions about cosmology. So, like, you know, you know, there was there's this cosmological constant that was discovered in 1998, right? Which is the, you know, also called known as the dark energy, right? It's the thing that is pushing the galaxies away from each other at an exponential rate, right? And yeah, you know, this has been, you know, the 
you know, one of the, you know, the most important discoveries in all of physics for, uh, for decades, right? Uh, and certainly in cosmology, right? The fact that this, this dark energy exists, what, what uh, Einstein uh, a century ago called the, called the cosmological constant. Okay? It's actually not zero. Uh, we, now, we, now, we now know that, right? But now, if that constant had been negative, right, which it could have been, Okay, a universe with a negative cosmological constant is one that, that in some sense, ha- does have a reflecting boundary, right? It's called an anti-desitter universe. Okay, and in that kind of universe, like we would be like sort of trapped in a bubble where everything would be unitary, right? And where like any photons that are flying away from the Earth, you know, eventually they can come back. Right. And so so no loss of quantum coherence would truly be permanent in that kind of universe. Okay, but you know, since 1998, we know that we don't live in that kind of universe, right? We live in a universe with a positive cosmological constant, uh, a desitter universe. Okay, and in that universe, you know, things really, you know, as at least as far as anyone knows, no one knows for sure, but it's you know, it seems possible that things can can fly off to infinity. And we could just take that as our criterion for when a measurement has happened. So in some sense, you know, we could say like it doesn't, you know, we, 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 you know, we could sort of harmonize the many worlds and the Copenhagen points of view by saying like, yeah, at some formal level, yes, you know, we, we, you know, there is this whole wave function of the universe or, you know, we're, we're willing to talk about it. That does include all of these branches where all these other things happen. Right. But, uh, you know, there's also a criterion, you know, uh, 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 for, for loss of quantum coherence, right. The, you know, the photons flying away from me at the speed of light where after that happens, then I might as well say that the other branches are gone, right? They are now, they are now not empirically accessible to me, uh, even in principle. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. So in other words, when you're teaching this in the comparative religion sense, (laughs) you're the Baha'i faith. (laughs) Each of them has yes. some semblance of the truth. Now, what was the name of the Susskind interpretation or the Susskind theory? I think they called it the multiverse interpretation. 
something. And and by the way, I just saw Lenny Susskind uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, and he doesn't seem to believe his own interpretation anymore. But you know, I still I I still like it though. <laughs> Yeah. Great. So the multiverse interpretation is separate from the many worlds because those yes, sound similar. That's right. Yes. And the many worlds, when you said that you measured, forgive the pun, your students at the end, and then they said <laughs> that they that they like the many worlds, eighty percent or so. Say. I think it was it was it was probably more like fifty five percent with with the okay. Rest, so a majority still. With, yeah, with the rest split among you know Copenhagen, Bohm. You know, I allowed like agnosticism or what does it even matter or shut up and calculate mm-hmm. or you right. know or or that there has to be new physics, you know, I, I allowed all those things. Yeah, it's surprising to me that number four, the provisional one that, hey, we don't have the current fundamental law, and so who cares about it, isn't more popular, given that gravity isn't integrated into quantum mechanics. I mean, I mean, I mean, it does have adherence, right? I mean, I mean, uh, Roger Penrose is one very famous adherent, right? But, you know, he, he I, I think he sort of hurts his case by tacking onto it like a whole enormous chain of speculations, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, you know he thinks that that uh, uh, quantum gravity causes an objective collapse of the wave function, uh, uh, and this collapse is uncomputable. It cannot be simulated by a Turing machine, and the microtubules in our brains are somehow sensitive to this quantum gravitational collapse, and this is implicated in consciousness. <laughs> right so that that's the that, that that's that's the penrose view and you can say like you know even even if you might go with him like you know to the first stop of that train you know most of us are going to get off by the you know before the later stops right yeah okay we're going to explore uncomputability all right shortly okay so oh yeah what i was getting at was did you measure the students initially and say hey what is your preferred interpretation in order for you to establish a difference yeah that's a, that's that's a good question like like to do a controlled experiment you ought to do that the trouble is that until i like expose the students to all these interpretations they don't even know what they are right yeah. mo- mo- most of mo- most of them have not even heard of them or if they have heard of them then you know i'm not sure if they could define them the reason is because in the popular press, many worlds is prominent. And so it may just be an effect of, hey, I like Sean Carroll. I listen to his podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, Sean makes very, you know, I, I, I've, you know, he's been a good friend of mine since, you know, 2006 or so. And I think he does make very strong arguments for many worlds. And I say that even though, you know, I am not nearly as, as hardcore of a many worlder as Sean is. Isn't there still the issue of having a globally well-defined measure in order to even state what the probability distribution yes. is of different branches of the wave function. So can you explain what that is? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you could say that the, the basic problem for, you know, if you want to be a many worlder is you have to explain, well, why do we only perceive one world? Right. And, and not only, and not only that, but what, you know, why do we perceive, you know, each world with these particular probabilities, the, 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 the these born rule probabilities, Right. Uh, but now, you know, I don't, I, I have to say, like, I don't, I don't regard that as like a problem for only the many worlds interpretation. All right. I think that it is, you, know, you could, you could ask the same question with any interpretation. Like, where, where, where did these probabilities come from? Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it's just that, that question takes on a different character depending on which interpretation you like. Right. Because, you know, if, if, if you believe in new physics, then you have to, postulate some new law of physics that that will then give rise to these probabilities right and you know and and, and you know you can 
check, you know, whether it does or it doesn't. And, you know, ideally you wouldn't just, you know, stick them in, but, you know, in, in, in physics, it's always better if you can derive something, right. Rather than, you know, mm-hmm. rather than, rather than, uh, just assuming it from the outset. Uh, if you are a, um, uh, a, a Bohmian, Right. Well, then, you know, you've just you you postulate a rule for your hidden variable, you know, for your cork in the ocean that uh, that 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 happens to always give you agreement with this Born rule. Right. But then you could say, you know, why 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 should it have been a rule of that kind? Right. And then, you know, will we you know, if 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 we started out in some other distribution, would we reach that Born distribution as an equilibrium? Right. So that, 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 that's what the question looks like to a Bohmian. To a many worlder, you know, the issue is that a many worlder is committed to the view that all of the outcomes are real. Right. All of the outcomes are experienced by someone. Right. And so then they have to say, then, then, then what does it even mean to say that this outcome has this probability and that one has that probability? Right. Like, uh, uh, you know, h- how do you even make sense of that statement? It's like, you know, you have to imagine that there's, the, you know, the, like all of these beings are real, but somehow, you know, one of them is going to p- be picked to be, you know, your experience. Right. And, 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 and so somehow there is some, you know, metal law that governs that. Right. And so there is a, a long history, you know, ever, you know, s- since Everett himself in the 1950s of many worlders, um, trying to uh or claiming to derive the born rule right derive the probabilities okay they always have to make some auxiliary assumption you know in in these derivations right because it's like you're starting with a picture that that has just the wave function you know that has no probabilities in it and then in the end you know you get a statement about probability right and so so you know there 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 has to be some step where where you're just postulating that yes yeah, something is random Right. Uh, and, you know, and, and for, for a many worlder, what that kind of looks like is um, it's this thing called indexical uncertainty or, or self-locating belief. So like, like basically, uh, um, you know, uh, imagine that, uh, um, you know, you didn't know your own blood type. Right. Like, you know, you just hadn't hadn't gotten tested yet. Right. But then you say, well, look, there's this many people in the world who are type O. There's this many people who are type A. Right. So I'm, I'm going to just assume that I was, you know, a randomly chosen person. Right. You know, and, and, and there's something fundamentally weird about that. Right. As soon as you start thinking about yourself. As, as chosen randomly from the set of all people. Yeah, there's also a reference class issue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Then you can start wondering about things like, you know, why was I born in the, you know, late 20th century as opposed to, you know, in, in uh, medieval Spain or, you know, or, or at some other time, right? Why am I on Earth? Why am I not an alien on a different planet, right? And, you know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not obvious if these questions have well-defined answers at all. Right. But, well, you know, what the many worlders need to do is to say, uh, you know, there are all of these branches of the wave function that, you know, are all real. They all have real copies of you. But now you have to think of yourself as a, you know, uh, as a randomly selected member of that ensemble. Right. And then once once you decide to do that, then, you know, you, you actually can give many mathematical arguments that like the born probabilities are pretty much the only probabilities that would make sense right like you can show that like any other choice 
for what the probabilities would be. Like if, if instead of the absolute square of the amplitude, suppose it were the absolute cube of the amplitude, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the absolute value to the 2.8 power or, or something like that, right? You can show that that would, that would give you like, like nonsensical things it would it would lead to faster than light communication you know it would lead to you know sort of massive violations of of uh uh you know the the well you know the 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 laws of physics that we understand so you can you can kind of give arguments for you know once you've decided to put a probability distribution over the all these branches why it should be this particular one right the harder part is to say why should there have been a probability distribution at all Uh uh-huh now, it's been a while since I've studied this, but it's my understanding that the space of pure quantum states is a projective Hilbert space, which is a Kähler manifold. The symplectic structure gives rise to the dynamics, and the complex structure gives rise to the superpositions, and the Riemannian metric gives rise to the probabilities. That's, that's, that, that, that's probably all true. Those are already much fancier words than the, 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 the ones that I ever use to talk about these things. Right. Well, fancy words with a specific mathematical meaning. <laughs> Some say that computability or quaternions are fancy words. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. What I mean is that when one says, well, where does the Born rule come from? In a symplectic, sorry, in a Kähler manifold, if you have two of those structures, you get the third. So why isn't the question then, well, why do we have a complex structure? Or yeah, why do we that have is, that, that, that is a different superb question. You could say, like, why should quantum mechanics have been based on complex numbers? You know, and, and, and you actually can define a variant of quantum mechanics that would only use real amplitudes, right? And, and that, that version turns out to be pretty good for many purposes. Like, it would lead to exactly the same power of quantum computers, you know, as, as our ordinary, you know, complex quantum mechanics, Right. It would lead to, you know, uh, uh, basically all of the same, you know, information and communication protocols, you know, such as quantum teleportation. You know, you'd have the same no cloning theorem, uh, the same all of that stuff. It's just that there, there are certain things that would be less elegant in the, in the universe with, with real quantum mechanics. Okay. And, you know, so, uh, some of those arise just because the real numbers are not algebraically closed. You know, you can't take square mm-hmm. roots of them. Right. And so like if I have a unitary transformation that, you know, operates over, let's say, one second of time, and now I want to know, okay, but now what was the piece of it that operated only over the first half second? Right. Well then, you know, as long as I have complex matrices, then I can just take a square root. Right. And uh, uh you know, I'll get an answer to that question. Okay, with real matrices, there might not be a square root you know, in the same number of dimensions. So for example, there's no, there's no two by two real square root of the matrix uh, one, zero, zero, negative one, right? That would be, that would be an example, right? And we, we can see that because it has a negative one determinant, right? So, 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 so that, that, that breaks, you know, various things about, about the way that physicists use quantum mechanics. And then, you know, there, there are other more subtle things that also break, like the number of parameters that you need to describe a composite state, you know, in, in, in complex quantum mechanics, it's exactly just the number of parameters that you need to describe the first piece times the number of parameters that you need to describe the second piece, Okay, but in real quantum mechanics, that's no longer true. By the way, it's also not true in quantum mechanics based on quaternions, right? Right. Okay, like, this is like interesting. With, with, with real numbers, you get an undercount. With quaternions, you get an overcount. And only with complex numbers does it work out exactly right. 
Okay. So there oh, are, okay. So, I never heard about the overcount. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so there are these subtle things that just work out perfectly when, uh, when, when, when quantum mechanics is defined over the complex numbers. But, you know, I got, I've asked mathematicians this question, like, you know, if you were God, you know, designing the universe on a blackboard, right? Like, you know, why would, you know, you know, do you know why you would have chosen the complex numbers for this? You know, like, you know, the, 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 uh, in some sense, the deep, the, the deepest laws of physics that we know. And the mathematicians were like, you know, well, come on, they're algebraically closed. You know, they're, you know, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want them? Right? Yeah. So I think you said this, that we used to think there were two logical operations and or, or, but then we found out with quantum mechanics, there's complex linear combinations. Uh, the third. Well, yeah. Okay. So I was saying like, like in, in terms of how you can combine multiple possibilities, right? Like, like it's, um, like, like, uh, uh, you know, when, when someone says, uh, uh that an, an electron, for example, well, it's not, you know, it, you know, in its ground state, it's not in its excited state, it's in some kind of superposition of the two, right? Often, you know, the first thing that they think that you mean is, well, then, you know, you, you must be saying that it's in both simultaneously, right? And, you know, and, 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 and the trouble is, if you take that too literally, then it leads to, like, for example, a vision of what a quantum computer is, where it would just try all of the different solutions in parallel, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's wrong. Right. That's just like that leads you to to like leads people to importantly wrong expectations of how useful a quantum computer would be if they really think that it could try all the answers in parallel, you know, in the in the in the naive way. Right. So then you you correct that. And then they say, you know, so, oh, so then so then what you must be saying instead is that, you know, the electron is in one state or the other and we just don't know which one. Mm-hmm. Right, it's sure, either in sure. the ground state or these, but no, we're you know we're not saying that either. In some sense, like it's a different ontological category that you know there there was no you know ordinary English word for because no one needed it before the 1920s, right? And that new ontological category is you have a complex linear combination of the two things. Do you believe there to be a fourth ontological category that involves the quaternions? I mean, I mean, you could define quantum mechanics over the quaternions or, or over the reals for that matter. And that would give, you know, a, a subtly different answer. So, uh, uh, yeah. But what would that look like? So, so, yeah. So, so, so quantum mechanics over the quaternions turns out to be sick in, in, in various ways. Like it's, it's sort of sick not as in cool. Or <laughs> sick as in... <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me tell you what I mean. And then, and then you can decide. Sure. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, at least naively in quaternionic quantum mechanics, you could send information faster than light. Okay. And in fact, like if, if Alice and Bob are far away, right, then, you know, uh, it could, it, you know, e- even if Alice is on earth and Bob is on Mars, like it could matter which one of them does an operation first, right? Does Alice act first or does Bob act first? Uh, you know, and this is because the quaternions are non-commutative, right? So, you know, it, it matters in, you know, it, it, you know e- even for separated events, it can matter, you know, sort of which, which operation we, we put there first. And now this is in flagrant contradiction with special relativity, Right, which says that you know when two events are you know space-like separated, then it can't matter in which order you know they're done because you know to some observers you know Alice will be first, and to other observers Bob will be first, right? And the, and these two perspectives have to be consistent with each other. Okay, so yeah. so 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 quaternionic quantum mechanics 
uh, breaks that, uh, you know, because the quaternions are not commutative. So, so if you want to believe in it, then you need some way, you know, of, of making that effect go away at large enough distance scales or something like that. There's a, a physicist named Steve Adler who spent decades trying to make that work. But, you know, I talked to him a few years ago and he said that he doesn't really believe it anymore. So, um, yeah, and, and then, okay, but now, now re real quantum mechanics, uh, like I said, you know, that one does make a lot more sense. But, you know, a real superposition, you know, philosophically, I would think of as almost the same sort of thing as a complex superposition. You know, they're just kind of different in detail. Now, the octonions have been chopped liver in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, octonions don't even get started, right? Yeah. yeah, you might get a, a tiny bit started. Just explain, because that's a popular subject. Well, now. okay, the 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 octonians are so you know so there there are these four uh, what are they complete division algebras. Uh, the norm real, division algebras. Norm division algebras. So excuse me. The uh, the, uh, the reals, the complex numbers, the, you know, which have two parameters. The quaternions, which have four parameters, and the octonions, which have eight parameters. And um, you know, and like naively, you would expect that it would, you know, it must just keep going after that point. But uh, you know, it was a very uh, important theorem from the 19th century that says that these are the only four. Right, uh -huh. so it's it sort of the, the progression stops after that. So there are these these four norm division algebras that are kind of special. But you know, as you go to the larger and larger ones, you you know you lose certain properties. So like you know, the reals are ordered, right? You know, the the complex numbers and beyond are not ordered. Okay, but with, with the complex numbers, you could say you know you 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 lose something, but you gain something, right? You get you gain that they're algebraically closed. Right. But now when you go to the, you know, and the complex numbers are also, you know, commutative, they're associative, they satisfy pretty much all of the, the basic properties that you would want in algebra. Right. But now, you know, with the quaternions, that already uh, uh, st starts falling apart because the quaternions are associative, but they're not commutative. Okay, so A times B can be different from B times A. Which doesn't sound terrible because non-commutativity is a hallmark of quantum mechanics. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I mean, look, and 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 and, and octonions still have, you know, you know, they have applications in, you know, even in computer graphics, in, in math and in physics, you know, they 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 are they are actually used, right? As I said, you know, if you want to use them as amplitudes in, in quantum mechanics, then then there is stuff that goes wrong. You have to then somehow make that consistent with with, with with relativity okay but now now the, the the octonions are not commutative and they're not even associative right so you know it's funny it's, it's like um um you know in, in like fifth or sixth grade right kids learn all these 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 terms you know this is the commutative property this is the associative property right but until you've seen any examples of things that are not commutative or not associative and this is just a bunch of words to memorize Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. I think that that you know the time when when you want to teach these terms is the time when you want to teach things that 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 don't satisfy them. Right. I mean, you know, for, for my for my for my daughter, uh, my my ten year old daughter, just the other day, you know, I you know I, the, you know the I gave you know the example of something non commutative, you know, getting dressed, right? You know, putting your yes. pa putting your pants on and then your underwear is not the same as the reverse. 
right? And so, yeah. so you know, so so there are you know there are examples for non-commutativity that that even a, a, a small child can understand. You know, not non-associativity is a little bit harder. Well, you're lucky this camera is only here. Otherwise, you'd see that I don't pay much attention to the non-commutativity of the pants and underwear. <laughs> Before we get on to consciousness, like I want to talk about IIT and I want to talk about All P right. versus NP, All or right. sorry, P equals NP, which by the way, when I learned it as a teenager, I just learned the equation P equals NP and I'm like, when N equals one, well, it's obvious. <laughs> right. Or, 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 or P equals zero, right? Yeah, 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 yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, I want to get to that, but we mentioned Wolfram before yeah. and Wolfram has a physics project. And so I'm curious if you had a chance to go through it and what uh, you thought. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, my basic objection to his project is the same as what it was 20, 21 years ago, when, you know, one of the first things I ever wrote uh, as a as a student was a, a review of his uh, a new kind of science book. And, you know, what I, I spent half of that review doing is just explaining why, you know, you know, his kind of model cannot account for the known phenomena of quantum mechanics. Right. And this is, you know, this is, this, this, this is not a fuzzy statement. Like this is, you know, this is, this is, you know, this is, this, this, this is a, a thing that one can prove. Right. So, you know, he, um, uh, uh, you know, what, what he wants basically is to, you know, reduce everything in the universe to cellular automata, right. To some, you know, uh, to, you know, a bunch of bits you know, maybe at the Planck scale or something like that, that are, you know, undergoing some sort of simple computational rules, you know, and, 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 you know, like, like that, like that, that far along. Yeah. I think, you know, that, that, that's great. That's, you know, that's like, you know, the, the whole, the whole physics community would like that, right. They would like, you know, especially a theory of quantum gravity that would explain why, you know, what's called the Bekenstein Hawking entropy is, is finite. Right? Why are there only finitely many degrees of freedom in a in a black hole? Right? Or apparently in any physical system? Right? Like, what is it? You know, when you get down to the Planck scale of ten to the minus thirty three centimeters or ten to the minus forty three seconds? Right? Something seems to break in our picture of a smooth, continuous space time. 
Okay. And we can see that from thought experiments where, for example, if you tried to, uh, uh, you know, uh, build a clock that was more reliable, you know, that, that could measure time more finely than, 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 uh, uh, than, 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 uh, 10 to the minus 43 seconds at a time, then your clock would take so much energy that it would just collapse to a black hole instead. Right. Right. So, okay. So, 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 so there are these thought experiments that tell us that sort of something breaks at, at the Planck scale, but, you know, can you actually explain that by giving a theory where space and time are discrete or, or, or sort of discrete at the Planck scale, right? That is a, I would say a central part of the problem of quantum gravity. Right. But now Wolfram, uh, you know, wants to wants to do something else. Okay, He wants to say, no, it's not that, it, you know, uh, we have a, 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 a um, quantum mechanics with a, you know, a finite dimensional Hilbert space and, you know, with a discrete space and time. He wants to, you know, in some sense, get rid of quantum mechanics. Right. And have it be a classical cellular automaton. Right. And then the problem is, well, we have, you know, in a mountain of evidence that that quantum mechanics is both true and and unavoidable right and so you know what does he do with that with that evidence right and you know and and, and he kind of hand waves it away right this is you know this is this is this is the key problem right he uh uh you know in a new kind of science he said well it's true that there are these experiments that you can do on entangled particles you know that could be very far away that lead to these phenomena like the violation of the bell inequality right which is you know famously a thing that sort of you could not explain in a classical universe right and that's sort of just sort of a very crisp statement right like it doesn't matter what additional assumptions you make you know as long as they're reasonable ones or sort of sane ones you say you know mm-hmm. i'm you know alice and bob who are far away from each other they measure their their halves of you know of this um entangled pair and they get and the statistics of the outcomes could not have been explained by any theory where the particles just secretly agreed in advance on you know whether to be spin up or spin down or or or, or whatever right that you know it can only be explained by saying well until Alice and Bob made the measurements it was an entangled superposition state right so 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 the, you know this is you know one of the strongest arguments that yes you know the you know the world it is really quantum mechanical and, you know, you know, it, it, uh, we can't just replace it by something else by, you know, certainly not by, by a local hidden variable theory. Uh, but then what Wolfram says, and this is in chapter nine of a new kind of science, he just says, well, okay, you know, this is no problem. Just imagine that sometimes there are long range threads between the particles, right? So usually space is local, but when, you know, two particles become entangled, then there's kind of like a thread that allows instantaneous communication between them, right? Problem solved, right? This is like, you know, the, the, uh, the Wolfram method, right? You just, you know, if you can imagine a way that the problem could be solved, then it's solved, right? And so what I spent a lot of my review doing is just explaining, oh, no, sorry, it still doesn't work. It still doesn't give you a picture that's compatible with special relativity, okay? And, and, uh, and so what, what, what you can get is, is that, you know, it's not just a statement about non-locality. It's sort of a statement that, you know, the, the, the universe cannot have, the, you know, if, if the, the measurements that Alice and Bob are going to make on the entangled particles have not been pre-decided or sort of were not known in advance, then the outcomes of the measurements 
on the particles also cannot have been pre-decided, right? They, you know, they cannot be explained by hidden variables that go back to the beginning of time. They must be sort of genuine new randomness, right? Or, you know, otherwise you get a violation of locality. Okay, so this is so, so so that was kind of the, the argument, and like I said, I just made that in two thousand and two, you know, buried in my my review of Wolfram's book. Now that same conclusion uh, a few years later became famous when um, Conway, uh, John Conway, and Simon Koshin said something very similar in two thousand and six, uh, and they called it the free will theorem, right? And you know the way that they phrased it, it was that like if humans have free will, then subatomic particles must also have free will, <laughs> and and then that they, you know of course that that got all over the popular press, right? But you know I uh, 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 I, I I would never have used the term free will here, right? Because I would say you know you know we could we could equally well just talk about randomness, right? And that you know, but it, it's sort of it's sort of a, a I, I might have I might have called it the freshly generated randomness theorem. Okay, and I see, I see. it sort of tells you that you know no model like 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 Wolfram's from a new kind of science can explain you know even you know existing experiments like the Bell inequality violation you know let alone you know all the you know the the experiments of the future. Um, now, uh, um, 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 Wolfram never never really accepted that. I think you know most of the community did. You know he 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 did not, right? But if you look at like what he's done more recently with the the Wolfram, mm -hmm. you know, I think he called it the Wolfram model of physics. Like you know, uh, um, what 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 he basically does is he just says, okay, well, you know, wherever we have a result that we can't explain classically, then we'll just graft on the relevant part of quantum mechanics. Right. Uh, you know, and and it's like, OK, you know, we'll assume that we have a multi-way system so it can, you know, evolve into superposition. You know, it can it can it can evolve multiple ways simultaneously. And that's kind of like quantum mechanics. Right. And, uh, um, you know, and and and, and uh, you know, and, and also like like we will, you know, say uh, we, we can derive general relativity, except the derivation yeah. basically be we like crib from a general relativity textbook we just find out what the einstein's equations are and we say okay well whatever is the cellular automaton it's presumably it's something that satisfies those equations right so it's like you know it, it it's not sort of playing by the rules of physics right where you have to you have to actually you know mathematically derive these things right from some simple starting postulate and then ideally you know make a novel prediction right that's the, that's the gold standard Right. But, uh, you know, I, I, so, so, so one thing that, you know, when I, I talked to, uh, 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 Wolfram in person a couple of years ago, uh, when, uh, he was in Austin and, uh, uh, you know, one, one question, one, one thing that I kept trying to get clarity from him about was, uh, uh, does he predict that scalable quantum computers can work or not? And, you know, he wouldn't, you know, he, he would not give a clear prediction. Basically, you know, that like, you know, this, this multi-way theory, you know, it, it, it suggests that maybe quantum computers can't work, but if it turns out that they do work, then the theory can accommodate that also. Right. And so, so, you know, it's kind of, you know, like, you know, it, it's sort of parasitic on existing science. It's like, you know, anything, any, you know, he, he basically says, just tell me the prediction from existing science and then I'll find a way to graft it onto this picture. Have you read any of the papers by Jonathan Garrard? Yeah, th these are exactly the ones that I'm talking about, actually. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's may, may, maybe there's something there that I'm missing, but, you know, I, I spent some time on it and, and that was the conclusion I came to that, you know, co- caused me to, 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 to not spend more time on it. All right. So before we get to P, no, let's get to P equals IP. Let's please explain what that is, why P equals zero is not a valid solution and N equals one isn't. <laughs> so um, P and NP are uh, two of the most fundamental complexity classes. Uh, which are just classes of problems that are solvable with different kinds of computational resources. So P stands for polynomial time, and uh, it's the class of all of the yes or no problems that a conventional computer, you know, a deterministic digital computer like the one that we're using, uh, uh, could solve uh, uh, using a number of steps that grows uh, like a polynomial function of the of the number of input bits. Okay, so yeah, and, and that's our sort of rough and ready criterion for when an algorithm is efficient, right? If it take, you know, if 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 its running time is uh, scales polynomially with the length of the input. Okay, this is not a perfect criterion because you know an algorithm that took n to the ten thousand time, right, would be wildly impractical. Okay, but what justifies it is that usually when something is solvable in polynomial time, the polynomial is something like n or n squared or maybe n cubed, right? Whereas usually when something is not polynomial, you know, you get scaling that looks more like two to the n power, right? That is like uh-huh. exponential in n. And, and that just, you know, when n is in the hundreds, let's say, then, you know, you can do n squared, you can do n cubed, but two to the n is just forget about it, Right. So, so that, so that, so that's why, like from the 1960s onward, the the polynomial versus exponential distinction kind of became fundamental to to complexity theory, and um, so P is just all of the yes or no problems that are solvable by some algorithm that has polynomial scaling. Okay, so what are some examples of problems in P? Okay, so, uh, you know, if I give you uh, a string of, of text and I ask, is it a palindrome or not, right? Mm, you know, or, okay. or any kind of basic arithmetic. You know, most of the things we do with our computers, to be honest, are, are things that are in P, right? Uh, uh, um, you, know, e- you know, more interesting examples, like uh, given a map, you know, is every city reachable from every other one? You know, given a graph, is it connected? Right. Uh, given, uh, a, yeah, yeah, that's that, that's in P. Uh, given a bunch of boys and girls, and who is willing to date whom? You know, can you pair them off so that everyone is happy with their partner? That's called the matching problem. That's also in P. And graphics like ray tracing, are you able to say whether that's P? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, m- 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 yeah. I, I think the basic problems underlying ray tracing would be in P. Also, yes. Uh, now, you know, there are some, you know, and, and, and these are all things that, you know, one can learn as an undergraduate in computer science, right? Uh, you know, there are, mu- you know, also much more, inter- you know, much more non-trivial examples. Uh, given a number written in binary, is it prime or composite? Okay, that's in P. It was only discovered to be in P 20 years ago. Okay, that's called the agrawal kyle saxena or AKS theorem. Okay, so you know they they gave a breakthrough algorithm. I mean, before that we had known probabilistic algorithms, but you know they gave the first deterministic polynomial time algorithm for primality testing. If if the number is composite, if the number is composite, then these fast algorithms do not tell you the factors. Okay, 
you know, finding the factors is a seems to be a, seems to be a much much harder problem, right? Which we can come yeah. back to. Okay, but determining primality is in pigs, right? Uh, you know, given uh, like uh, a bunch of linear constraints, you know, is there a way to satisfy all of them? That's called the linear programming problem. Okay, again, it's in P. You know, for for very non-trivial reasons. Okay, so a lot of interesting things are in P. Okay, but now there's this potentially larger class, uh, uh, which is called NP. Now, that does not stand for not polynomial, which, uh, you know, uh, 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 some, some people think it stands for non-deterministic polynomial time. Okay, so what does that mean? So NP is the class of all the problems where sort of if there is a solution, then you can check the solution in polynomial time. Okay, so if the answer is yes, you know, the, there is a solution, then there is some witness, some proof that if it's given to you, then you can check in polynomial time that, yeah, I guess that works, right? So, so let, let, let's, 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 you know, uh, um, go through some examples, okay? Solving a jigsaw puzzle, right? Like, like imagine a jigsaw puzzle with no picture on it, right? So you're just trying to fit all the pieces together, okay? That might be, you know, incredibly uh, uh, cumbersome to do, Right. You might have, you know, exponentially many, you know, possible ways of fitting the pieces together to try. Okay. But if someone has solved the puzzle, then they just have to show it to you. Right. And, you know, you can easily see that, yes, they have solved it. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the famous traveling salesman problem where, you know, you, you're given a bunch of cities and you're asked, let's say, is there a route that, you know, visits every city, like with at most 5,000 miles of total travel distance? Right. Again, you know, you know, if there are N cities, there might be N factorial different, you know, uh, 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 routes that you would have to try out. Right. That, you know, with hundreds of cities that could be massively expensive. But if someone finds the, a route that works, then they just have to show it to you and it's easy to check. Okay. So that's also an NP problem. Okay. A factoring, you know, I ask, let's say, does this number have a prime factor that ends with a three? Or, 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 or some, you know, question like that, right? Where, um, again, you know, you know, uh, the fastest algorithms that we know for factoring, uh, take some, so, some sort of exponential time, at least, at least uh, the algorithms for, for, for classical computers. Okay. Uh, uh, um, um, they actually take time that's like exponential in the cube root of the number of digits. Okay. That's called the number field sieve. Okay. And, and, and that's extremely important for cryptography. Right, because uh, you know all of the encryption that sort of currently protects uh, uh, the internet, you know, is based on the belief that factoring or a few closely related problems are hard. Yeah, yeah. Even for the factor of three, isn't there like some algorithm that if you add the digits? I said, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I said a factor ending in a three. Oh, oh, sorry. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I agree. If you just want to know if the number is divisible by three, that is in P. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In, in fact, in fact, if you want to know if it's divisible by any fixed number, uh, th that's in P, right? But oh, cool. Okay. But, but but if I don't tell you the prime factors and they're like, let's say they're all enormous, and now you know you have to find them, right? Then that we don't know how to do in P. Okay. But it still is an NP problem because if someone succeeds in factoring the number, then they just have to show you the prime factors. Right. And at least with a computer, it's easy enough to multiply them. And as I said, it's even easy enough to check that those numbers are prime. 
Okay, so uh, so so factoring is another NP problem. Okay, so now the P versus NP question is just the question: Well, how do these classes relate to each other? So it's 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 pretty clear that P is contained in NP. Right. So, you know, if you can solve a problem yourself in polynomial time, then you don't even need this witness. Right. You just, you know, you just have the answer to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but now the 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 the, uh, the profound question is, is NP contained in P? Okay. So so uh, if I can efficiently recognize the solution to a problem, then does that imply that I can efficiently find the solution? Okay, and you know, and 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 so that that's the that's the P versus NP question. Okay, and you know, and and like like as soon as you know you see this question, like 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 so like so, some people like it takes time to convince them of why it's even a question at all, right? Because you know they would say, well, obviously not, right? Obviously mm-hmm. there are cases where where you're going to need brute force search, you know, and brute force search is going to take exponential time, right? But um, the trouble is that you know, as as we discussed, like with the example of the matching problem, or uh, the linear programming problem, or uh, the primality problem, right? There are cases where, it, like naively, it looks like you have to try exponentially many possibilities. But if you think about it more, then there is a clever shortcut that only takes polynomial time, right? And so, so, so what P versus NP is asking is: Is there always a clever shortcut? for every problem where we can efficiently recognize a correct answer. And so, you know, that is for, for half a century, that's been sort of the central unsolved problem of theoretical computer science. And I think it's now recognized as one of the central unsolved problems in, in all of mathematics. So two questions. One, why is this the largest unsolved problem to you? You think this is the greatest unsolved problem in math and potentially even physics. And then number two, this sounds... So it's, not, it's, it's not a physics question. Right. It's a, it's a question. I mean, I mean, I mean, we could, we could, we could find a related physics question by asking, for example, can the all NP problems be solved in polynomial time by any physical means? Right. Which could include a quantum computer or could even include, you know, a hypothetical quantum gravity computer or or whatever. Right. You know, then we'd be asking a physics question. Right. But, you know, P versus NP is a question that can be purely stated mathematically. Right. Meaning yeah. it has some platonic answer. Right. We just we just right. haven't we just haven't proven what it is. What I meant was that I heard you say something along the lines of, look, the Clay Institute has many yes. of these problems. Yes. And one of the problems is a physics problem, the Yang Mills problem. Yeah. Well, you could, or, you, or you could say it's a it's a mathematical physics problem or it's a math sure, problem sure. That, that, right. that, that, that came from physics. Okay? But uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, the argument that I give is just that if P equal to NP and furthermore, if the algorithm were really efficient in practice, so not like N to the 10,000, but, you know, N squared or N or something, then that would not only let you solve the P versus NP problem, that would let you solve all of the other clay problems. You know, the Riemann hypothesis, the Yang-Mills problem, right? And all the other ones. And why is that? Because it would mean that we could just ask our computer, right? Say like, like uh, um, um, you know, is there a proof of this theorem in this formal language, you know, like Zermelo-Frankel set theory uh, that, that is at most, you know, a million symbols long or at most a billion symbols long? Right. And and what it would mean if P equal NP would be that if such a proof existed, then you could find it using a number of steps that only scaled polynomially with the length of the proof.
right? Uh-huh. So like in, in, you know, only polynomially more time than it would take to write down the proof, you could actually find the proof, right? And so in some sense, you know, mathematical creativity uh, would have been automated. Uh-huh. So a proof of P equals NP would automatically have well a- well okay I mean I mean I mean the, the 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 caveat is that the algorithm would have to be efficient in practice right but but you know the, the question like you know is there a proof of this theorem in the in some purely formal language you know like first order logic you know ZF set theory yeah. right uh, with at most this number of symbols that is an NP problem right literally. Uh, so, so and, and so that means that if P equaled NP, then it would also be a P problem. Can you explain what quantum supremacy is? Uh, so quantum supremacy is a, a term that was coined by the physicist John Preskill um, in, in 2012. And uh, it's it just referring to sort of the first experiment that you can do with a quantum computer uh, that solves some some benchmark problem uh, much faster than we believe that it could be solved with a classical computer. Okay. And notice that I did not say a useful problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. have to be useful. It can be a, can be a completely artificial benchmark, but it has to be something that is well-defined. Okay. So like it can't just be like simulate this physical system with all of its noise, right? You have to give a mathematical specification of, 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 of what calculation you want so that that same calculation could be done either on a quantum computer or on a classical computer. Okay. And what we want to see is that the quantum computer is faster, you know, not just than classical brute force, but the, the, the fastest classical algorithm that anyone can, can design. And we want to see that, that that is so for sort of inherent scaling reasons, you know, not just for sort of accidental reasons of hardware, but, you know, the quantum running time is sort of scaling polynomially in a way that the classical runtime is scaling exponentially with the size of the problem. Okay, so that's, that's quantum supremacy. Um, and so, so Preskill coined this term in order to describe sort of the kind of thing uh, that, 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 that I and others had been talking about, like in the year or so prior. Right, so my uh, then student Alex Arkhipov and I uh, in 2011 uh, we had a proposal called boson sampling, okay, which was mm-hmm. a proposal for like a very rudimentary kind of quantum computer um, that, for example, could be you know built uh, uh, using using photonic components. Okay, so uh, you just generate a bunch of single photons, you send them through a network of beam splitters, and then you measure where they end up. Okay, and and that's it. That that that's all you do here. So this is we don't think that this is universal for quantum computation, or even universal for classical computation, for that matter. Right? It's like in some ways it's a very very limited uh, model of computation. And yet, if you ask, like, okay, uh, 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 what is it doing? Well, it's sampling from a probability distribution. Right. Each time you run the experiment, you feed in the photons, you know, they will typically end up in different places. Right. Because, you know, they sort of move around randomly, you know, and, you know, I mean, they, 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 they or, or, or rather they evolve at a superposition state. But then when you yeah. make a measurement, you collapse the superposition. Okay. And you just see one outcome. Uh, so you probably never even see the same outcome twice. You know, sometimes there's two photons here, one here, zero here. You know, sometimes there's zero here, zero here, you know, three here and so forth. 
right? So, so you see these different uh, distributions. Of, you know, sorry, you see these different lists of uh, photon occupation numbers. Right? You know, numbers of photons in each uh, sort of output port. Um, uh, but then, then you ask the question. Uh, okay, you know, you could ask, well, what, well, what is this useful for? We don't really have a good answer to that. Okay, but then you can ask a different question, which is how hard would it be for a classical computer to sample from the same probability distribution over photon mm. locations, right? And what we did in 2011 was that we gave pretty strong evidence using complexity theory that that problem should be hard for a classical computer. Okay, you know, I could go through, you know, through like what what the evidence looked like, but basically, if there were a classical algorithm that could sample from exactly the same probability distribution as the sort of ideal version of this this photonic experiment, then we say like that that would have sort of staggering implications for complexity classes. It wouldn't quite it wouldn't quite mean that p equaled np, but it would mean something. That's sort of morally almost as bad as that, which is which okay. is called which is called the collapse of the polynomial hierarchy. Okay, it's sort of, sort of like a more abstract version or higher up version of p equaling np. Okay, and we showed that that would follow if you had a fast, exact classical simulation of boson sampling. Okay, and then uh, if your classical simulation is only approximate which is sort of the more physically relevant case because after all the experiment itself isn't perfect either right uh you know in the approximate case we believe that that would collapse the polynomial hierarchy but there we had to make a, a, a you know a yet another conjecture okay uh with you know and, and that that, that and, and I, I would say the 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 status of that remain remains unresolved to this day Okay, but but you know it's it's at least it's at least seems very plausible that you know and, and we showed that like you know here is some well stated problem about a function of matrices called called the permanent and if this problem is sufficiently hard then boson sampling is hard to simulate using a classical computer even approximately. Okay, so yeah, so so we did that and then independently from us uh, there were others uh, like uh, Bremner, Joza, and Shepard. Who were having, you know, related ideas uh, like about different kinds of rudimentary quantum computers that, you know, were not, you know, again, uh, uh, you know, were not obviously useful for anything, but that at least, you know, seem to give rise to these probability distributions that are hard to sample using a classical computer for, 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 you know, and and, and for for broadly similar reasons. And, and, you know, so, so one reason why we cared about this was just pure complexity theory, right? It was just pure, you know, mm-hmm. can you, can you encode these hard problems into the amplitudes of a, of a, of a quantum computer, right? But, uh, but then, you know, we realized more and more as we worked on it that maybe the, you know, the experimentalists will care about this because, you know, the, what we're talking about are devices that seem potentially much, much easier to build. Than a full error corrected quantum computer, right? Uh, like, like basically, like if you could just generate fifty to a hundred photons and send them through a beam splitter network and then measure where they end up, you know, that should already be enough to do a boson sampling experiment that is hard for a classical computer, you know, hard for the biggest supercomputers in the world uh, to simulate. Okay, and so then you know we we. Uh, uh, 
explicitly talked about that. And then, you know, the quantum optics experimentalists got very excited about it. And, you know, they decided to start doing it. Uh, you know, initially, like in 2013, it was like with three photons, four photons. This is all, you know, of course, trivial for a classical computer to simulate. Right. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, 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 the difficulty, ideally, you know, you would expect it to go maybe like two to the power of the number of photons. Right. You know, let, uh, uh, less than that if there's noise or other things that, that you know, uh, you can take advantage of. But um, um, but but then um, what happened was that in 2014, I think uh, uh, Google hired uh, John Martinez, who was maybe the top superconducting qubits experimentalist in the world. And um, and and he said, you know, we want to build a 50 to 70 qubit quantum computer, you know, that's programmable using superconducting qubits. And, and we want to do something cool with it. Right. And, and what is there to do with 50 qubits? That's cool. Right. Well, there, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot, unfortunately. Right. Most of the actually useful things, you know, they might need like, you know, hundreds to thousands of qubits and then crucially, you know, of a much higher quality than, than Google was, you know, a- able to make where you could do like thousands of layers of gates, you know, and they couldn't do that. They can do maybe 20 layers of gates. Right. Uh, but so, 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 so what you could do, well, they, they realized, okay, we can do some version of boson sampling. Right. Except, you know, adapt, uh-huh, except yes, more, yeah. except now more, more adapted to their hardware. So we talked to them about that and we said, yeah, that, that sounds, uh, um, reasonable, but you know, we're going to, you know, we, we, we then had to adapt the theory from boson sampling to, to superconducting qubits, you know, to the, to the, to the kind of thing that they were building. So we did that, um, like 2016, 2017. And then in, uh, 2019, uh, Google, uh, announced that they had actually done this. So they built a a 53 qubit device uh, called Sycamore, and they used it to um, sample from some probability distribution over 53 bit strings, um, you know, that, 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 that you get by just applying like a random sequence of quantum operations uh, to these qubits. And then, you know, at, at first they were saying, well, with the best classical algorithm that we can think of, it would take 10,000 years to do the same thing on a supercomputer, right? And, and the press loved that, right? And, and, and they ran with that number. And that, and that turned out to be wildly over-optimistic. Right. right. So pe- I could imagine Michio Kaku would love that. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sure he would, right? But, but the, you know, the, 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 the hard part in quantum computing if you want to be intellectually honest about it, is that you always have to compare against what is the best thing that anyone can do with a classical computer, right? And you're, and you're only winning if you do better than that, okay? And, and, and what's the best thing that you can do with a classical computer is often far from obvious. I mean, you know, after all, that's what the P versus NP question is about. Right. Right. So, so, uh, so, so, and, and indeed what happened over the the next couple of years is that people got better and better at simulating the Google type of experiment with classical computers by, you know, taking advantage of the noise and taking advantage of the fact that each qubit can only sort of talk to its nearest neighbors, you know, so you can, you can sort of take advantage of all the the current technological limitations of Google's experiment in order to simulate it faster with a classical computer. And I would say that the current situation is that the Google chip, you know, like is still somewhat better 
than any classical solution that we have for the task of simulating itself. Okay. Uh, like if you measure, let's say, by the total energy cost, right, or by, you know, the the money that it takes to run it or the CO2 that's emitted. By steps? But well, by, by, by the, the, the trouble with steps is that, you know, you like with a classical, you can always roughly have the number of steps by just using twice as many cores. Okay. okay. So these okay. problems are very, very parallelizable. Right. So, you know, you can always do it faster if you're willing to like go to AWS or whatever and just say, you know, I want, you yeah. know, this, this massive number of cores. Right. But just, but then, you know, it's interesting. Some, right. But then at some point for the comparison to be fair, you know, you should maybe be talking about money or you should be talking about, you know, the energy, you know, the electricity that gets spent or, you know, and, and, and if you look at metrics like that, then I think that the quantum computer, you know, still wins on some tasks, but only by a couple orders of magnitude at this point. That sounds a bit human, though, because if we're measuring it by money, firstly, that's human. But if we're measuring it by energy, isn't it then not based on the algorithm, but based on our current cores? And maybe in the future, Apple comes out with M5. Of course it is. Of course it is. So you could say that, you know, you are fighting against a moving target, right? Like quantum supremacy could be achieved and then unachieved because, you know, the classical classical hardware and software right, will both get better. You know, and so if you want to claim that a quantum computer is better for something, right, then, you know, you may have to keep improving the quantum computer, you know, just for, for that statement to still be true. Okay. Now, now the hope, well, let's be clear. Okay. The hope is that eventually you have an error corrected, you know, programmable quantum computer. And at that point, you can scale up to as many operations as you want on as many qubits as you want. Okay. And at that point, you know, you could use like millions of qubits to factor some enormous number, right? That like, unless there's a breakthrough in classical algorithms, that just cannot be done classically within the whole lifetime of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the eventual goal, okay? But we're not there yet, okay? And, and you know, with these, you know, what, 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 what we can do today are these sorts of sampling experiments, right? Where, you know, we're, we're solving problems that don't have a single right answer, right? You know, we, you know, we're sampling from a distribution over possible answers. And a key drawback of these problems uh, is that uh, even just to verify what the quantum computer is doing already uh, appears to take exponential time with a classical computer, okay? Which means that we're sort of inherently limited in how far we can scale this. Like, you know, if you scaled it to 300 qubits, even if it worked, how would you ever prove it? Right. How would you ever convince a skeptic of what you had done? So we're sort of forced to stay in this regime where the advantages that we can get over classical computers are relatively marginal ones. Okay. Uh, but you know, but, 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 but at least we can now do that. Right. Five years ago, you know, we could not even do that. Okay. And, 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 and now we can. Right. And that's, you know, I think it's, it's a step forward. I think it's, you know, it's taught the experimentalists a lot about how to actually integrate, you know, uh, uh, large numbers of qubits. And, you know, and one, maybe scientifically, the most important thing that they learned from these quantum supremacy experiments was that like the total amount of signal you get, what's called the circuit fidelity is, well, it, it's falling off exponentially with the number of operations, you know, which sounds kind of bad, 
right? But it's but the good news is that it's merely falling off exponentially and not faster than that. Okay, so okay. basically the total fidelity, you know, like, like let's say you know each individual two qubit operation has a fidelity in, in Google's experiment of about ninety nine point five percent, right? And there's about a thousand such operations. Okay, and so so then the total fidelity that you get for the circuit it looks like just 0.995 to the power of a thousand right uh you know which is like the simplest prediction that you could possibly make and as long as that remains true then ultimately quantum error correction should work okay so you know the the people who who believe that scalable quantum computers are impossible such as you know a gil kalai is a, is a famous one right uh, you know what? What they basically have to believe is that you know either quantum mechanics itself is going to break, which you know, let's face it, that would be far more exciting than a mere success in building a quantum computer. Sure, right? That would be a revolution in physics. Or else they have to believe that there's some sort of conspiratorially correlated errors that will violate the all the assumptions of the theory of quantum error correction. Okay, but from the quantum supremacy experiments, we can now say we see no sign of those conspiratorially correlated errors. And you're referring to superdeterminism? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I mean, superdeterminism is like so bizarre that like it, it's not even clear that that would have any empirical consequences at all, right? Because that, that's just saying there's a giant cosmic conspiracy theory that just predetermined everything that would happen from the beginning of time. Right. It was like, you can always believe that, but it's sort of explanatorily worthless. Right. It doesn't, mm. you know, it has no power to explain anything. Okay. So the, 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 the more interesting thing, you know, the, you know, the, if there were these conspiracies in the, in the errors affecting qubits, that would act, that would be something that, that would be empirically observable. Right. And, you know, if the, if the, correlations were strong enough then conceivably that could even kill quantum computation okay but you know there there are some basic difficulties here one is that it's very very hard to design a model of correlated errors that only kills quantum computation and that wouldn't also kill classical computation right if you kill classical computation then you've proved too much because you know we know that scalable classical computers can be built right so, 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 uh, so, okay. But then the other thing you can say is that, you know, from the quantum supremacy experiments, we see no sign of these correlated errors. The errors look pretty independent. And in that case, it's, you know, as long as that remains true, then it's just a quantitative question. You just have to get the, the accuracy of each operation to be high enough, like instead of 0.995, maybe 0.9999, right? And then, and, mm-hmm. and then at that point, quantum error correction should work. Now, we both got to get going shortly, and I wanted to end on the topic of consciousness. So why don't you talk about your critiques for IIT, and then also what the pretty hard problem of consciousness is. But before you do that, I just wanted to ask you a yes or no question about if you saw Tim Palmer's response to your critiques on superdeterminism in his recent article. Tim Palmer's article on superdeterminism without conspiracy is listed in the description, and you should know that Tim Palmer was on the Theories of Everything podcast, and that link is also in the description. He was on with Tim Maudlin at the same time, talking about the interpretations of quantum mechanics. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I, think, I think it is a conspiracy. I mean, I think that he redefines terms in an utterly perverse way in order to make it look like it's not one. But, you know, I don't think that you 
you actually explain anything new that you 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 know couldn't have explained without this and uh you know there's it's like it's a problem because i only have so much time in life to spend you're right and like you know and like like you've asked a lot about wolfram's ideas about tim palmer's ideas right but like there are so many ideas out there that seem like orders of magnitude more plausible to me than these right these are just you know these people have succeeded at like getting out to the public right and putting their message before the public but like scientifically i regard these as worthless ideas <laughs> so um uh, so, so, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but, but now, uh, uh, consciousness. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, so integrated information theory is another thing that I think has, you know, okay. You know, maybe like it was worth trying, it was worth thinking about, but that has also become, you know, a worthless idea, a pathological idea. Okay. So it's a, a proposed, you know, theory of, of consciousness, or at least of what things are conscious and what things are not. Uh, that was uh, um, originated originated by Giulio Tononi, okay, and uh, you know also uh, pursued by you know a bunch of other people such as Christoph Koch. Uh, uh, I think you know Ma Max Tegmark uh, was into it, and and basically what it says is that there was some you know you could take any complex system and then there was some quantitative measure that you know that 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 you can calculate uh for that system that somehow measures how interconnected all of its components are right and and the war you know they, they call that fee right and the larger is that fee measure the more conscious the system is right uh now you know you could say what is this fee right well the actual definition of it keeps changing Right. So, you know, there's not actually the one fixed thing that you can critique. Uh -huh. Right. They keep they keep fiddling with it, with with the, with the definition of it. And um, they said, you know, and, and, and uh, if you read the papers about it, like what they say is, well, you know, we have these axioms of conscious experience. And then, you know, we, you know, derive fee from these axioms. But actually, there's no derivation at all. Right. It's sort of like pseudo mathematics. It's like, you know, they state the axioms and then at some point fee just appears. It just shows up, right, right. you know, not having been derived in any way. Right. So they show it's consistent with the axioms, but not derivable from them. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the, the axioms are not even clear enough to me for me to really understand what they are saying. Right. But, okay. but, but at least the fee measure, you know, at least like that seems reasonably clear. Like if you, once you've decided what are the subsystems, what does it mean for a subsystems to be connected to each other and so forth, then, you know, and, and you decided which version of fee, uh, uh, you're working with, then, you know, you can actually calculate these numbers. Okay. And then, you know, their, their case, you know, they're like, they were neuroscientists and they said, well, there seems to be much higher connectivity in the cerebrum than in the cerebellum, for example, right? And the cerebrum is associated with consciousness and the cerebellum is not, right? Mm -hmm. So that was, that was the kind of evidence uh, that, they, that they gave. Okay, but then uh, I wrote a blog post about this uh, like nine years ago where uh, I pointed out that uh, we could easily invent systems that have massively higher fee than the human cerebrum, right? But that are just like a gigantic grid of XOR gates, 
or something like that, right? Without processing? Yeah. Well, well okay. Yeah. Maybe, you know, they, they do process something like they compute the XOR of a bunch of bits, right? But, but it's all like completely regular. It's like there, there's not even anything interesting or intelligent going on there, let alone anything conscious, right? And yet, you know, if you, calculate this number that they put forward, then you'll get that the connectivity between the different components, you know, can be arbitrarily large, right? Just depending on how big you make the thing, right? You can make it, you know, and, and, and I said, and to me, that seems like a reductio ad absurdum, right? That seems like, okay, you know, the, the, the theory is just making a, you know, uh, like, like an utterly wrong or, or absurd prediction. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and therefore, you know, this connectivity, it might be correlated with consciousness in, in, you know, various cases, but it cannot be identical with consciousness, right? Because we can, we can make it, you know, huge in systems that are obviously not conscious. Okay. And so then Tononi's response to me was, uh, was extremely interesting. Okay, because what what he he I, I say like uh, the way I put it was like he didn't just bite the bullet he like basically devoured a bullet hoagie with mustard right he said look you know the problem is that you're just you know using your intuition but you have to rely on the theory and what the theory tells you is that this grid of this giant grid of XOR gates is conscious in fact it's much more conscious than you are right and you have to be bold and just believe what the theory says and you know and and my response at that point was like. Okay, if a theory is sort of getting right, you know, the things that, you know, the cases where we already thought, you know, we knew the answers, right, then you might be interested in, in, you know, what does the theory say about the really hard cases, like, let's say, about a fetus, or about a coma uh-huh. patient, or about uh, um, uh, an earthworm, or about an AI program, right? Uh, but if the, if the, you know, your measure of consciousness is already you know, telling you that a potato chip bag is conscious, right? Or yes. that, you know, any old, you know, sort of uninteresting physical system, you know, is, is conscious just, you know, because of this sort of, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, mundane properties that it has, right? Then, okay, if, if it's gotten that wrong, then sort of what is there for it to get right? Right. Yes. Right. It's like it's like uh, h- how else would we validate the theory in the first place, except by seeing that it at least gives the right answers in the cases where we already thought that we 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 understood what we what what, what we meant by consciousness and so forth. So 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 that that was kind of the point where I got off the train, and you know, and this theory has just continued, you know, you know, generating I don't know hundreds or thousands of publications over the last decade. I saw that there was a letter recently by like a bunch of philosophers and neuroscientists who said that, you know, integrated information theory is pseudoscience, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there was a response and there was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't even wade into this because I felt like I had, I had said my piece, you know, a decade ago, yeah. right? Well, it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, yeah, th- these are, these are ideas that are worth exploring, but then once you get, you know, once you see that you you make a prediction that that's bad that that's that badly wrong, then I think you have to you know you have to go back to the drawing board. You have to say, okay, well then you know th- this this th- this is not a measure of consciousness, right? And instead, they just keep trying to you know rescue the theory, and at some point, you know that kind of thing does degenerate into pseudoscience. So it sounds like what he's saying is that what you think of as a reductio ad absurdum is actually a productio ad correctum. <laughs> You're proving something correct, and we should listen to the theory. Yeah. So why can't we follow that same logic when it comes to the many worlds and say, look, 
on one hand, some people can say it's a reductio ad absurdum. You're predicting all of these yeah, other worlds. Yeah. But then Sean Carroll may say, no, no, we should right. be listening. Well, to the, well, I, I would say that the difference is that quantum mechanics gets, you know, every single case that we can check, it gets the right answer. Right. Right. right? You know, that, that's been true for a hundred years. There are zero counterexamples. Right. And that's now even with very, very complicated entangled quantum systems. And so then, you know, it is it is natural to just want to do the extrapolation and say, you know, assume that this continues to be true up to arbitrary scales. Then what does that mean? Because because we've seen no sign otherwise. Right. But like with 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 consciousness, like I feel like if if you want to decide what is or isn't conscious, like like, you know, we we have to start with. You know, we have to start with definitions, right? Like, what do we even mean by consciousness? Like, it is, you know, whatever it is, like, it is some sort of thing that we regard ourselves as having and that we regard this glasses cloth here as not having. Or at least not having anywhere near as much. Right, right. right yes, yes, exactly. It's not, not having nearly as much. If you say that this glasses cloth has much more consciousness than I do, then I say, well, what do, what do you even mean anymore by the word consciousness? Right. I, don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't. I don't think you're talking about the same thing that I, that, uh, that I was trying to talk about. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the pretty hard problem of consciousness is. Yeah. That, that, that's just the problem of. Okay. So 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 the hard problem of consciousness, as you know, articulated by uh, the philosopher David Chalmers uh, in the '90s, is to uh, uh, you know explain you know why there is ever anything that it is like to be you know, explain, you know, how, how subjective experience can arise out of, you know, mere matter or, you know, mere, uh, 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 physical systems obeying the laws of physics. And, you know, in some sense, this is a problem that goes all the way back to Democritus in like 400 BC. Uh-huh. And you have a book on this. I do. I do. Yeah. He, I mean, I mean, Democritus already stated this problem in a, in a remarkably modern way. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and certainly uh, Descartes, you know, uh, asked this question centuries ago. So this is, you know, one of the great problems of philosophy or, maybe you know, the great problems of all of human existence. Right. Uh, and it's not even clear what an answer would look like, you know, uh, or what, what kind of thing could be an answer, you know, let alone how to find that answer. OK, but so then. Said, so, you know, whenever you encounter something that is just way too hard, whether it's the hard problem of consciousness or whether it's P versus NP, right? Then you know, it's it's natural to want to scale back and say, well, you know, is there is there an easier related problem that we can make progress on, right? And so, what I called the pretty hard problem is just the question: uh, which physical systems are associated with consciousness and which are not? Right. Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you could imagine answering that without having to answer like, you know, among the ones that are conscious, like, you know, why are they conscious or how? Right. You could imagine just giving a criterion that that, you know, agrees with intuition in all the cases, you know, that 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 uh, that we can think of and that, uh, uh, you know, and, and 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 that actually calculates, you know, some some measure of consciousness, you know, from some some simple starting point. You know, that is precisely what IIT was trying to do. And I respect that it was trying to do that. I just don't think that it succeeds. Mm hmm. Well, Professor, thank you for spending so yeah, long with me. sure. It was so much fun. Yeah, all right. I hope to speak with you again. Yeah, all right. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, then one that I recommend is the one with Tim Palmer and Tim Maudlin, as they're both superlative explicators of quantum theory, and superdeterminism was a central tenet of that conversation. The link is in the description.
Also, if you'd like to donate, as we've had trouble monetizing the channel with sponsorship, then please do so at patreon.com slash Kurt or the PayPal link is in the description, as well as a crypto link. Your support helps Toe delve this much in-depth with each episode, keeping it high quality, and helps us continue. Thank you so much. Every dollar helps. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.